Welcome to episode 78 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky. I'm Steve. And joining us tonight is a man who was once described as the most Welsh person ever to appear on Film 89. He's joined us before to discuss Goodfellas, Casino and Taxi Driver. He's a lowlife pimp and a hustler, but he has a beautiful singing voice. It's Mr. Leighton Winstone. Welcome back, sir. Right, we got to discuss these intros. I mean, come on, man. I'm not a pimp, I'm not a lowlife. I do have a very... Nice singing. All oh, right then. Okay. Yeah. I'm all. Hello again. Voice you and all. And also joining us after he left us in the lurch for our taxi driver episode because he was working on some film by a certain well-known Hollywood director, which is certainly the type of excuse we'll accept. He's a filmmaker hailing from Los Angeles, California. It's our very good friend, Mr. Kyle Reed. And Kyle, welcome back to Film Eighty Nine, brother. Uh, I'm glad I can redeem myself this time around, but uh, appreciate you having me again. Hey, no problem. No problem. So tonight's episode is again one of the big ones. One of those special films that we've wanted to cover since Film 89 began. It's Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 adaptation of the novel of the same name by Mario Puzo, The Godfather. So we put out a tweet and a Facebook post a few days ago asking for your views on what is generally considered one of the greatest films of all time. Thank you to everyone who replied, DM'd or emailed us and apologies as we won't be able to read anywhere near all the replies that we've had, but here are a few of them. The first is from Jerome Fletcher via email who says, at last, Film 89 are covering The Godfather. I've been waiting for this since I first started listening to you guys a few years back. The Godfather is a film I've always appreciated, but it's only in recent years, having studied film at university, that it truly dawned on me that this is one of the most perfectly crafted of all films. The pacing of storytelling and the little details you pick up on repeat viewings make it an all-timer. It's literally high art, and the same goes for part two. Ed Arson via Facebook says, The only other film I put next to this is part two. 
trade Brando for De Niro and a significantly better Pacino than the first film. Tough call, man. Guess it's whichever I'm watching that I like best at the time. They both make me want to watch the other. Neither make me want to watch part three. And our very good friend and former guest on Film 89, Stephen Simpson, who you can follow on Twitter at SteveU7, says, My first viewing was as a kid on TV in hour-long episodes with part one and part two. Never look back, and this is still the greatest gangster movie of all time. Uh, one of our very good friends and a previous guest on the podcast is filmmaker Martin Kessler, who said, I think I may be completely alone in preferring the novel over the movie. <gasps> Interesting. Another very good friend of ours and a previous guest, Adam Rakoff, says, The Godfather was the first film that I ever saw that came on two VHS tapes. In the mid-80s, we visited my parents' friends who lived in New York City and they owned a copy. I think it was the only VHS they owned. It was my dad's friend's favourite movie. I had never heard of it, but I was fascinated. What was this movie that came on two tapes? It took a few more years before I was allowed to watch it, but I think the anticipation made me love it even more. Our good friend John Arminio, you can find him on Twitter at Quasar Sniffer, says, Being from an Italian-American family, The Godfather is one of those movies that I sort of inherited. So when I first sat down and actually watched it from beginning to end, so much of it was already familiar to me because of being in the room where my dad and uncles were watching it on TV or what have you. So I just hope to hear how you gents first came across it, what your initial perceptions were. I mean, I know it's one of the most well-known movies ever, but I'm always curious about how those kinds of films impact upon people's first viewing. So guys, following on from what John said there, what was your first experience of seeing The Godfather, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my first experience was probably different to a lot of people because I saw it in the late 80s when I was in my mid-teens. And I actually saw The Godfather Saga, which was a TV movie version of it in which it was parts one and two were played in chronological order. So it started with the Robert De Niro scenes, then went into Godfather Part One and then ended with the uh, Al Pacino scenes of Godfather Part Two. So I saw it completely out of the original intended order. But that didn't stop me from being, you know, blown away with it. It was, uh, you know, it was, it, you know, a couple of months ago we we spoke about Citizen Kane and you know the joke and how Davies was making it quite a few times. He said Citizen Kane is the Citizen Kane of movies. <laughs> well, this is also a Citizen Kane of movies. Yeah. Um, I think this was much like Taxi Driver, one of those films that always sort of existed in the ether, that was always there, but. Personally, I don't think I saw it until it must have been around the time when part three came out in 1990. And I think that's when my film interest started really peaking and started going back to earlier films. I had the VHS from from somewhere and I had part two as well. So I, I bought them on VHS and then started understanding filmmaking and, you know, the, the, the legacy of the film and those films that I saw around the times, how they sort of built upon its shoulders, you know, the films that came thereafter, because I heard a really crazy stat or something like before The Godfather came out, there was, there wasn't a great deal of uh, mafia films or in, in, involving gangsters, but after The Godfather, there was something like 400 made in, in like a 20 year period, it just exploded. It was one of those things that was always there, always in the ether. I think Marlon Brando's was, performance was always referred to as a benchmark amongst acting and it's just existed much like I said to the taxi driver just always there somebody somebody you knew always had it and would always refer to it as being one of the greatest films of all time yeah 
Uh, I found it. I, I first watched the film uh, in my teens, and I remember as a kid though being at my grandparents' house and seeing the dual VHS tape of Godfather and Godfather Part Two on the mantle all the time, and just being freaked out by Marlon Brando's photo. I just was always very unsettled by him. But once I, I watched the film, it was one of the first films in my young film watching career, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, that I'm like, oh, I'm watching a film. Like, I'm watching something that is crafted to the nth degree. Like, every moment has a purpose. And it was one of the first films I ever watched where direction was truly evident. And I was at the hands of a master. The movie I saw, I saw it after Goodfellas. So my mafia fandom had already been, you know, started for that genre of film. And it's not fair to compare because they're not the same film whatsoever. I just I love The Godfather on its own. I love part two. I kind of look at those two films as one sometimes and just how they're so interlocked. And both of those stories are so perfectly told. So, yeah, I was I was younger and I actually haven't returned to the first film. And it's been almost five years. So for the two viewings I did for this podcast, uh, it's been interesting rewatching them now for uh, with all this time in between. Well, I don't know if I mentioned this on it could have been our Goodfellas and Casino episode or possibly the, um, the the Summer of Sequels 1990 episode that we did where we talked about briefly about The Godfather Part 3. But by the time that film came out in 1990, I was only kind of just getting into films, but, you know, 89 and 90 in, in quite a big way. But at that point, I'd still not seen The Godfather 1 or 2. And then like you, Kyle, I saw Goodfellas first and then during the early to mid 90s and beyond, I, I got into Scorsese in a big way and then via Scorsese into well gangster or mafia films. I think fortunately for me, I, I saw The Godfather after seeing these other films first, films like longer, broader, operatic stories, you know, the way the way Coppola you know created them. I think I was ready for them by the time I got round to seeing them and, and from the start fully appreciated them. I think I watched them countless times over and over. Or I would watch one, then two, then three. But one thing I will say though I have not watched these films now in quite a while. In prep for this episode, I cracked open a, a, a triple pack uh, Blu-ray, which had been sitting still in this cellophane for years, uh, along with countless other Blu-rays I've not had time to get around to watching. I've definitely not watched them you know, in the Blu-ray era. The last time I watched these films was definitely on DVD, because I think that 2009 is when I made the transition to Blu-ray. So it's a long time since I've, I've certainly seen, well, any of the Godfather films. But I'd kind of watched them so much that, it, you know, getting back into this for, for this episode, it was kind of like slipping on a comfy pair of shoes. It was just something familiar. Also, it was the benefit of watching them now with, you know, kind of much more mature eyes because I'm, you know, nearly 15 years older than probably what I was when I last saw them. I was, I was very lucky recently because um, for the first time, I, even though I saw part three in the cinema when it first came out, very recently I managed to see part one in the cinema for the first time. And it is such a fantastic experience to see it. But going back to what you've seen about watching the, you know, the um, cocaine-fueled um, films, you know, like um, the Goodfellas and all those. As um, Leighton said, you know, this is a film that spawned, you know, four hundred gangster movies, and yet none of them managed to be quite the, the same. We've seen lots of films try to be Goodfellas. We've seen a lot of films trying to be so many others, you know. But yeah. Scarface, yeah, yeah, exactly. But none of them been able to match this old Hollywood and new Hollywood of um, The Godfather. This this film totally revolutionised Hollywood when it came out, didn't it? The making of in itself is just 
truly, truly fascinating. But Coppola, what he what he managed to pull off, basically go into the the book and Mario Puzo's novel, writing the screenplay with him. Coppola wrote the screenplay first, then he went to Puzo and said, "Look, I want you to come in. I've taken what I think are the best bits, but I, we just need to sort of firm it up. We need to punch it up." That that idea in itself was remarkable because he ultimately was the one who went to Paramount Pictures saying. This film is just is not the Godfather. It's Mario Puzo's The Godfather. Just that thought process again. It's almost a new of at the time. Yeah. Well, speaking of the book, then Leighton, and before we dive headlong into discussing the film, have any of you guys read Mario Puzo's novel The Godfather? Twice. <laughs> I started reading it and got distracted by another Godfather book. I'll admit that. What I did read of it, it's over descriptive. Um, <laughs> Um, Lucy Mancini yeah yeah Yeah. I I can see why they were the first to be dropped yeah yeah (laughs) but as as people quite right well from what as much as the book as I've read and when you read the background into it Puzo was was like this jobbing novelist you know he wrote pulp at the end of the day he wrote these stories to sell quickly to go to the the dime uh, books that used to sell so in in America at the time and somebody said to him, well, sex sells. Just put loads of sex into your stories. And then somebody made mention of, you know, why not do one about the mafia, but with loads of sex in it. And that's that's what it sort of spawned from. And Puzo, growing up in Hell's Kitchen in New York, sort of knew that like the, the, these figures in the, 19, I think it was the 1950s, uh, 40s, I think it was. So he knew firsthand these people. He'd seen them. He'd sort of walked among them. And he, he, he makes mention that, you know, he knew people. And the family would be helped out by these people if they didn't have food in the house, if they didn't have this, if they didn't have that. These people would just turn up and give them these things. And it's, it's sort of all coalesced into this story that sold something like 10 million copies and was like num- the number one book in the world for like six months or something crazy like that. You know, it's, it was most pop- more popular than the Bible at the time, you could argue. You know, it was just crazy. Uh, look, I'll, I'll fast up, guys. Sorry, I, I've not I've not read the books. Steve, as you know, I've got some sort of strange indoor problem in my brain that I don't tend to read much noise fiction at all, unless there's a film connection to it. But certain books being... The, the idea of The Godfather, the book having now seen the film, based on a lot of the stuff I've been told by a lot of people, I've kind of been put off because there's, there's this, like, isn't there like this significant, as you mentioned, the Lucy subplot with the um, unusually proportioned nether regions? <laughs> <laughs> oh, hell yes. Yeah. There's also the case that Johnny Fontaine plays a significant part in the book, which isn't a problem, but then I've heard that a big portion of the book has got this weird Lucy subplot and then a lot of a comment on Hollywood which, like Coppola, looked at the book and said, this is all extraneous to the story this year, because Coppola always said that The Godfather is a story about family and it's a story about succession. And taking all of this fat off the meat and casting it aside and concentrating on all the stuff that's left, which is still not insignificant, from what, and again, this is purely from what I've been told by other people, I'm kind of regurgitating things they've told me based on their experiences with the book, but Coppola definitely made the right decision in condensing it down to the, the basically meat of the story. You're 100% correct, yes. Yeah, it's like what Carl Gottlieb did with Jaws. You know, there's a lot of sex in Jaws, the book. Yeah. Well, there was the, um, obviously, uh, Alan Brody had an affair with... Um, with Hooper. With Hooper, which is just, you know, that would have made you look at Hooper and Ellen in, com- in a completely different light. 
And it makes Brody's and Hooper's relationship completely different. And I, I read the Godfather book in high school, and I felt the same way I did reading Jaws. Like, I really enjoyed the book, but it wasn't always focused on what I'm interested in. Which, in a book, you can do that. It's a little more forgivable. But I, I heard, is there multiple books? And yeah. if so, are yeah. they actually what the movies represent in the sequels? Well, the second um, book he wrote was The Sicilian, which was made into the film by the... Um, uh, Christopher Lambert. Yeah, Christopher Lambert was in it, yeah. And basically, it's... it's e- easily an actor uh, that this, this this is good as Brando, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the accent is perfect, yeah. Um, but yeah, it tells the story of the time when um, Michael is in Sicily. But it's also telling the story of a true... A Sicilian gangster, and he managed to weave um, Michael's story around it. You know, so it's it's a it's an okay book. It's not a great book. Okay. Do you know uh, do you know who directed the film? The Sicilian. Yeah. Was he Mc- um, Michael Cimino? It was Michael Cimino. Oh. oh wow! Seriously, very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow, he of uh, wow. the Deer Hunter fame, really. He of the Deer Hunter fame and Heaven's Gate. And Heaven's Gate, yeah. Mm. The, the making of The Godfather is it should be a film in itself because once Pooh had handed the novel in, he'd sold the novel for I think $12,000 to Paramount really, really cheap, not thinking it was going to be any good. He went on holiday and forgot about it and then came back to find out that he was, you know, a very rich man. Paramount had already made a, a gangster film called The Brotherhood, which was a huge flop and they didn't want to make another one. So what they wanted to do is set The Godfather in modern days, in the 1970s, make it really cheap, and set it in somewhere like St. Louis or something like that. And, that. and that's what they wanted to do, you know. And then when they, they brought in Al Ruddy as the producer, because he was known to produce, you know, cheap films on budget, but Coppola wanted, obviously, to make it in New York and make it authentic, and he pushed and pushed, and with the success of the novel, he had a bit of weight behind him. But when they managed to start to get into New York, you know, this is where the great story starts because this is where the mafia stepped in and said initially, they said, no, you can't do it. And there was an organization called the Italian-American Civil Rights League um, were supposed to represent, you know, um, Italian-Americans. And they they basically didn't like the fact that uh, Italian-Americans in movies were represented as mafia hoods and as um, bad guys and things like that. The head of the Italian-American Civil Rights League was Joe Colombo, who was one of the heads of the families Mm. of the mafia. And in the end, uh, Al Ruddy had to have a meeting with Joe Colombo and he was kind of duped, he was, because when he turned up for the meeting, he thought it was going to be a one-to-one meeting. There were 600 people there. At the end, they said, OK, we, we, we allow you to make the film, but we want to read it. So he got the script, 155 pages, give it to Columbo in a special meeting. And it was obvious that Columbo couldn't read very well. You know, he was going through it. You could see his uh, lips moving as he was trying to read it. And he passed it to somebody else. And they were like, I'm not going to read it, you know. So th- in the end, they agreed that as long as the word mafia and Cosa Nostra didn't appear in the film, they were okay to make it. Mm, yeah. And what he didn't realise, if he had read the script, is the word mafia only turns up once. And that's when uh, uh, Jack Waltz um, says, you know, was it um, Guinea Gumba Mafia? Yeah. or something like that. So it was, you know, it was just one of the long string of uh, insults that he was throwing at, so it was easy to take out. Yeah, yeah so in the end, um, when they started filming it, loads of mafia, you know, hoods and members, and they all were, they all wanted to play a part. So, you know, in the opening scene, in the wedding scene, loads of the people, all the extras there are from, you know, members of the mafia. The photographer that um, Sonny, you know, grabs the camera and throws it onto the ground, 
you know, he's the official photographer of um, the Colombo family. Quite a few members of the cast, like uh, Al Martini, who played Johnny Fontaine, and Giancarlo, uh, John Russo, who played Carlo. You know, but they all had connections in some way or another to the Mafia. As did James Kahn. Uh, well, James Kahn wanted to be a member, I think, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. Didn't he meet up with, <laughs> them, with, with some wise guys and sort of hang out with them? Well, yeah, you, he, he sort of grew up around them in Queens, in New York. He knew, he, well, when there was one capo who was like a very, very close family friend, and he sort of leaned into them and, uh, you know, he'd pick up on the certain things that they were saying and he would drop, he would ad lib a lot of it into 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 his performance as Sally. Yeah. And he had ve- yeah, yeah, well, most famously, the Bad Bing. And, um, <laughs> it, well, there's a, there's a funny story that um, he had a day off from shooting, so he went to visit his parents in Queens and I was having a, having a meal and he was so engrossed at the kitchen table. He went, Ma, pass me the fucking salt. And it's, everybody looked at him horrif- horrified. And he sort of looked and he was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Because he was that enveloped in it. Yeah. Wow. But, he was under um, investigation by the FBI for a while as well. Yeah. They were watching yeah. him, thinking that he was an actual hood. Yeah. Not, not yeah. because obviously he wasn't a big star at this time, so they didn't recognize him. No, no. Um, and fascinatingly, oh, wow. fascinatingly, Nicholas Pelleggi was working for the New York Times, I think, at the time, Steve, was it? I think so, yes. Or the New, New York Journal yeah. or something. Because he had mafia connections himself, so he was around the filming of The Godfather a lot, and then he would go on to write Wise Guys, and then go on to write Casino, another connection. Yeah, another yeah. connection to a previous episode. Yeah, yeah. Pozo was, of course, from a very large family himself. He was one of seven children, I think. When he got married, he had one of five children. He would often complain about when he was writing that he wouldn't, wouldn't be left alone, there would be children running around and screaming, and babies crying and whatnot. And that sort of bleeds into the film because there's many a scene with children running around mm. and kids crying and, and, you know, just noise all of the time. But Puzo was a humongous gambler. He was regularly, regularly in debt. And going back to what Steve was saying about this, the, sell, the, the sale of the book, that pretty much wrote off the debt that he had at the time to, like, various loan sharks and whatnot. But as Steve said, the, the book just sold and sold and sold and he became extremely wealthy. But his gambling habits would, would be notorious. Hence why they'd go to Las Vegas on research joints because he was such a big gambler. And whereas he should be locking himself away right then and he'd go into casinos and like, you know, the recognised hoods in the area would, would clock him. As soon as they knew who he was, they'd sort of give feed him stories and they, that would bleed into The Godfather and the, the legacy of The Godfather. It's all fascinating. And they, Steve, there is a, a TV show coming out about the making of The Godfather. I don't know it if you're aware to. of it. No, I, I'm not. It needs to be, though. It's called, I think it's called The Offer. It is, correct. Yeah, with Miles Teller, Kyle. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's had a bit of a notorious production, hasn't it? It has. Um, I don't know how I feel about the show, honestly. The, the story needs to be told. I just don't know if the execution of that story or well, I think it's a six-parter, something like that. Who is um, he playing, Miles Teller? I think he's playing Robert Evans. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the guy from Fantastic Beasts is playing Francis Ford Coppola. So Miles Dan... Teller is playing Albert S. Ruddy. Oh, right, right. And, and Matthew Good will be uh, Robert Evans. Matthew Good. Yeah, who's in uh, Stoker, the uh, American, or the 
first American Chanwook Park film. That's yeah. Yeah, yeah, he played he played yeah. Ozymandias yeah. in Watchmen, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Dan Fogger, is it the guy? Dan Fogger? He's Francis Ford Coppola, correct? Yes, he is. Yes, yes. Oh, this... Michael Gandolfini's in this. Oh. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh, is he playing Puzo? Uh, no, he's playing Andy Calhoun. Right. Patrick Gallo is playing uh, Mario Puzo. Oh, Burn Gorman is playing Charles Blundhorn as well. No, there's a, there's a character to talk about, but we haven't got time. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> That's Charles Blood, uh, not them, not Boone Gorman. Uh, there's a great story about uh, um, Robert Evans when he said, because uh, apparently he and he was married to Ali McGraw at the time, and they were threatened with and their death threats from the mafia. And mm. he actually said, hey, I'm not producing. It's Al Ruddy, as if, you know, nothing to do with me. And um, the reply he had was, when we kill a snake, we chop off its head. <laughs> yeah. Robert Evans wanted all the glory, didn't he, though? He did, I yes. Know, yeah, I, I don't know if you've, you've, you've probably read Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, the, the book. Yes, a, lo- a long time ago. And what, yeah, and have you, have you read his, his autobiography, Robert Evans? Uh, is it The Kid Stays in the Picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating book, and it's a fascinating documentary they made as well yeah. thereafter. Really, really good, actually. So let's move on to the film, guys, because we have got a monster of a film ahead of us, haven't we? It opens with, in the titles, Mario Puzo's The Godfather, giving the author top billing, as, as Coppola would later do, with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the film opening with the line, I believe in America, spoken by The Undertaker, Bonacera. He'd come to an America of laws and justice, but that system had failed him, so he is forced to go to Don Corleone for help. Then, slowly, in, in, in a, I think... Like a monologue that lasts maybe about three minutes, and, and this is, you know, an actor none of us are familiar with. I don't know if he was a particularly experienced actor, but that holding shot on him as we gradually pull back, and then we see that over the shoulder, then we've got Marlon Brando as Don Corleone. It's a quietly understated way to start a film, but in these opening scenes, and, and they will be intercut with scenes from the subsequent wedding that we're about to talk about as well, but we learn very quickly quite a lot about one of the two central characters, Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando. Well, the actor who played uh, Bonacera, was actually, it was his own first role, wasn't it? He was a, a barber and he just played, tried out for the role. He plays it so well and he's got the perfect accent and the way the camera just pulls back, and we, we, it's, it almost portrays Don Corleone as he's almost like a godlike figure. He's listening and he's judging. And it's a fantastic opening. It's a fantastic introduction to, you know, this immense character. Yeah, and it's the way he talks. It sounds like he's from the old country as well, because the way he says she kept her honor. Yeah, yeah. and it's the, the, the little hand gesture that that does so and says so much. You know, it is. It's, 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 he's a man of compassion, and you haven't even seen him face on or heard him, but already he's he's concerned about somebody else's welfare around him. Very much. By just by the wave wave of a hand. It's, I think one of the things that gets kind of set in stone in this early interaction between Vito Corleone and this character, which then gets repeated with many other characters, is the fact that when Bonacera says to him, Godfather, what do you want from me? What what do I have to pay you or have you to do this favour for me? It's It's quite clearly Vito Corleone is insulted by this because he is not a man to whom you offer money. He deals with things in an almost transactional capacity about the fact that 
he wants you to be his friend to be loyal to him and then in turn you will benefit from his his loyalty and his protection and and it's the way that brando gets across the fact that Bonacera offends him by even suggesting that that payment is something that that will be accepted like you know like Don Corleone even needs money and I think that's something that that comes back later in the film in a few scenes and I think what what this this opening sequence the wedding included is it sows so many seeds that are referred to later as the story progresses I think the first time certainly for me this one of the first times I watched the film things sort of passed me by because you had so much going on and there isn't there aren't timestamps happening to tell you that you're jumping ahead five years mm. or two years or anything like that throughout the film. But these little characters that are mentioned, that are seen on screen, they have significance later in the film yeah. at a point. Bonacera goes there, like you say, Don Vito is, you know, he's offended about the cash offer. And he said, I, I'll come, if, if I need you, I will come to you and that will be, you know, us squaring our debt to each other yeah. then. The scene in which you see Bonacera later, and he's, he's again, he's, he's stoic, isn't he? And he's smartly presented as he is speaking for the first time on camera. And it's like this, these echoes going back and forth all the way through the film to these characters and these connections all the way. I think that's down to the way Coppola structured and set out what he wanted. It's remarkable, absolutely yeah, remarkable. It is. In the visual language of just the opening with how it's shot and how... It's composed with, we have the Undertaker just so small in that chair. He looks so weak and, you know, he's literally at his end, you know, end of his wits. He's at the point where he's going to actually try to ask the Godfather for this. And we just see, the first time we see Brando, he just looks so big and menacing. And the way uh, Gordon Willis really just shot it with darkness and used shadows. And every time we are in the godfather's lair or his office whatever you want to call it it's so dark and it's so such a juxtaposition between the brightness of how bright it is outside and even the style of how they shoot sicily in some ways later in the film and how that's such a romantic looking movie when they're in sicily and anytime we're with the godfather and with his confidants it's very dark dingy and scary it's just such an interesting juxtaposition yeah. to use cinematography like that. Like you're telling a story subconsciously that you understand where everyone's coming from. Yeah, and we, you know, we go from this slow, patient, kind of quiet opening, and then we've got boom, we're into this lavish wedding scene. Everything that's going on outside, and the wedding scene, it it does so much. You know, we're introduced to characters like Tessio, played by Ava Goda, Richard Castellano as Clemenza, and so many little nice touches are put in. Like the little girl that's dancing stood on Tessio's shoes is a lovely touch. But you know, this scene has got so much to do. It's not just introduce us to a very big cast of characters, but also showing those characters individual traits such as Sonny, his hot-headedness with the way he deals with the FBI and the reporters outside. <laughs> and you've got that accidental way that they ended up dealing with Luca Brazzi and how he set up with having him practice in his speech to Don Corleone outside. Because Lenny Montana, who played him, was a professional wrestler and he was apparently really intimidated by Brando and kept fumbling his lines when they actually filmed this scene face-to-face. So Coppola got the idea that when the scene... or Sorry, got the idea to film the scene of him practicing before his scene with Brando. And then apparently Brando, you know, as we later go on to, was always messing with the cast and crew. And in that scene with Montana, apparently he had a note stuck to his head saying, fuck you, just to screw with Lenny. 
<laughs> I, I wouldn't have messed with him myself because he was, you know, um, a bad guy in real life. One of the things he used to do, apart because he was an arsonist, and one of the things he used to do is catch a mouse, <laughs> tie a tampon to the end of the mouse's tail, put in gasoline, and set it on fire, and then let the mouse loose in the, in the building. Jesus. The bro- oh, my God. <laughs> So he, he wasn't a, he wasn't a good guy. And, and well, talk, talking about animals, and the that, the cat in Brando's lap. Apparently, that was something that Coppola just added on the day and was never planned. But you know how iconic is that? Is him sat there stroking that cat? You know, but you know the story about the cat purring with the the microphones picking up on their the, the little microphones they had hidden in their suits. The cat was purring so loudly because the cat was so comfy. Yeah. The only reason the cat was there, it was there to catch the, the mice that were running on the stage. <laughs> with with, with the, tampons dipped in gasoline. Type <laughs> well, <of. laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? It was, per, it was so comfortable and so relaxed around Brando that they literally had to ADR. Uh, uh, Brando's vo- uh, uh, and had to try and mute the cat out because the microphones from all they were picking up was the cat purring constantly. It's amazing how much vulnerability you give that character just with that cat and just the sh- you know show like oh he's a real person because everything else going on in that scene he is the don he's as big as it gets and then you just have this little cat i just love that little happy accident as orson welles would cop it yeah, call yeah. It, call it. but yeah, just... you've got a, you've got a juxtaposition then with like him being relaxed you know with a cat on him and all the rest and being kind to bonacera and then to to the baker but then when Johnny Fontaine comes in the room, he changes because... Yeah, there's, just, there's a warmth there then, isn't it? Yeah, there is. There's, a, there's an initial warmth, but then Johnny Fontaine becomes quickly pathetic, doesn't yes. he? And Don Vito snaps. And the story is is that Al, 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 Martino? Al, Al Martino just wasn't getting it. And yeah. Brando snapped and grabbed him and shook him. And that's what the, you see in the film because he wanted more from him and he wanted into you know be a little bit more pathetic but he just wasn't enough and he just snapped if it is as you say there Leighton and that happened in those circumstances and wasn't firmly written into it it, it, it works two ways as well because when we then see Sonny's infidelity during the wedding and then we cut we go back to the scene afterwards then immediately following when Vito is berating Johnny for crying and, and asks him if he spends time with his family because a man who doesn't spend time with his family isn't a real man, just as Sonny is coming into the room. And to me, then, that's clearly a shot aimed at Sonny, whose infidelity you would imagine Vito doesn't approve of. So he works, you know, on on another level again. Exactly. And then that, that comes again, then, with the meeting with um, Salotto in Genko Oil, doesn't it? Yeah. Where, you know, he, he has to berate him in front of people. He, he, you know, he doesn't want to be doing that because that's his, that's his next in line, isn't it? He doesn't want to show it as having weak points, even though everybody knows that he's hot-headed, that he's got this, these regular bursts of aggression and bursts of violence. Like I say, it's the foreshadowing back and forth, back and forth all the time. It's remarkable storytelling. Interesting tidbit about Al Martino, though, for everybody in the UK. Um, he had the very first UK number one with Hure in My Art. Really? Yeah, he was actually on the run from from the mafia because um, they signed off. Uh, he was quite a successful singer. They bought his contract off his manager. He didn't like that, so he actually escaped to England for six years. And he actually contacted Bruno Angelo, who was the Don of Philadelphia, Harvey Keitel in The Irishman, and, yeah. uh, and asked him to arrange for him to be able to go back to the United States. Yeah. Well, speaking of music... In this wedding scene, all, all the Tarantellas and incidental music that, that was composed by Coppola's father, Carmine. They had just two and a half days to film the wedding scene. 
two and a half days wow. to film. Wow. I, I, I've never even, I've never actually counted how long the scene goes on for and timed it. I think, I think it's twenty minutes. All I think it's about twenty minutes all in all. Yeah, it, it it's certainly not right. And we've mentioned Michael Cimino. It's not the 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 wedding scene in the the Deer Hunter, which takes up. Ah, but did it, did it inspire the Deer Hunter? Did it? That's right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because Deer Deer Hunter came out three years, four years 78. after. Oh, six years later then. Yeah, so they, they had two and a half days to film the wedding scene in the studio. You know, as we know, were constantly on Coppola's back and pressuring him and threatening to fire him from the picture. They even had to shoot additional pickup shots of Michael and Kay when they were sat at the table at night, it, and, which baffles me. I, I've Having read this fact, I've since watched the film again, and I've watched that scene, and apparently that scene was filmed at night and it was lit to look like daylight, but it all just blends perfectly with everything else that Gordon Willis had shot. Wow, <laughs> I did not know that. That's incredible. And, and, that, and that scene uh, with with Michael telling Kay about his father using Luca Brasi to threaten the band leader who wouldn't release Johnny Fontaine from his contract, make you know, make by making him an offer you know he couldn't refuse. You know, that's the famous line. But I think the key to that scene is Michael's line to Kay: "That's my family, Kay. That's not me." Yeah. Because that yeah. is the, the the other line is the one that you know, the Godfather became famous for but when we're talking about the story that's being told here that later gets carried on then in parts two and three it, it's that line that's my family Kay. that's not me because as we will see as much as michael may have come back from world war ii and and seen his family as something maybe different and, and something that he didn't want to be a part of it doesn't pan out like that does it well the whole film is about the corruption of an innocent isn't it that's right yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially when you consider, like, when you first see Michael come on screen, he's an, he's an army captain, isn't he? Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the last scene, and not to jump ahead, but the last scene of Godfather 2, Michael's very much like your, your classic Ivy League college student, isn't he? So, you know, the transformation from that to an army guy to, you know, someone who goes brutalised and then becomes this man of, an, of, of immense power is... Yeah. The transformation physically almost in Pacino, you know, he goes from fresh faced and floppy fringe to this guy with his hair yeah. gradually going back and back and back to this man of zero remorse. And it takes, you know, it just takes a look for him to make to someone for something to happen. You know, it's, it's quite famous. Nobody at Paramount wanted Pacino. Nobody wanted him. They wanted De Niro. But De Niro was tied in to make funny enough a, a gangster comedy film the um, couldn't shoot right straight that's right yeah and well Pacino was hired for that because they were refusing to have him for the Godfather and they did another screen test and I think it was Robert Evans and already Steve um saw the screen test and they were convinced uh, no they were shown sorry six minutes of Panic in Needle Park yeah that was what it took them to convince to hire him and then they made a deal then for De Niro to have the Pacino part in the other film and Pacino went then into The Godfather. Yeah. Well, De Niro did also apply, um, try out for the sunny role, but they said that he was yes. too much of a psycho. And if you see his... Um, <laughs> mean streets. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, they, they've got some uh, footage of him actually auditioning for it. You can see that on YouTube. He, he does really come over as very, very... Right on the very edge. There's not mm. much control there whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. No lovable streak in him like there is with James Caan. No, though. no. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. James Caan was considered for Michael as well at one point, but then because uh, because the studio would recognise James Caan as uh, Michael, when Pacino go- eventually got him, he pushed him aside then into the sunny role. The but- way that the um, 
studio was thinking about uh, Al Pacino. I'm surprised that Diane Keaton wasn't um, up for the role as well. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, I mentioned the Carmine Coppola's contributions to the music in the film, but Nino wrote it, obviously wrote the score for The Godfather, and Bob Evans is notorious for hating that score initially. But Coppola stood his ground, even in the face of being fired, which you know was something he faced several times throughout the filming of The Godfather. But he won out by arranging a screening for a small audience with the score being played, and they loved it. And then Evans agreed, and Nino Rota's music stayed. Can you imagine The Godfather without Nino Rota's score? That um, theme is just too iconic now. Yeah. It is, you know, uh, all you have to do is ham it and you think gangsters. Yeah, uh, yeah. absolutely. And, and it's not just, you know, the... Da, 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 da. It's not just that one. It, it's the, the, the Sicilian one, though, the, the, the one with him when he goes off, you know, on, on his other sort of journey and he finds Apollonia and the more romantic, you know, versions of the, of the theme which are played. And are you going to sing that one as well? I, no. No, I'm not going to do that one. I might, might drop it in, like, you know, in the background, but... <laughs> After the wedding scene, which, you know, surprisingly, yeah, uh, 20 what did you say Leighton 20 I think it's I think it's about 20 minutes long yeah 20 minutes yeah I think it is yeah. obviously that that finishes then with we've just heard that Johnny Fontaine's got this problem with this this movie mogul Jack Walsh in Hollywood so then Tom Hagen played by Robert Duvall goes to Hollywood which leads to one of what has to be guys I think the most famous scenes in film history I gotta say if I had to pick what my favorite scene or, or segment from this film is I think it has to be this maybe it, it's Duval's performance I think here that shows his patience and like quietly cool confidence and it is strongly rumored that Mario Puzo took this from obviously the real life stuff surrounding Frank Sinatra getting the part in From Here to Eternity I just love the way that after rudely kicking him out Waltz and you know he, he's he's extremely rude to him you know he, he chucks a load of you know racist insults about you know Italian Americans what does he call him he says um calls him like an, an Italian American he says no I am German Irish he said well you listen to me my crowd mix friend he's <laughs> just a venom with which he yeah. spits out these like sort of racially insensitive words to say the least you know clearly he's got people that do some digging around about Tom and he finds out that he works for Don Corleone this big mafioso boss and then he invites him back and is all apologetic and then you know they dine and Walt is all niceties until then it comes back to the subject of Johnny Fontaine but obviously before that Walt when he's showing him around his, his what, what, what would you call it it's a mansion isn't it yeah, yeah. It's, a it's like a Spanish villa, isn't it? It's like a Spanish mansion. And, and he, you know, he shows him, yeah, this 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 opulent home that he's got, and shows him his six hundred thousand dollar racehorse, his prize racehorse, which he isn't even going to race. He's just going to put out the stud. And then when he comes back, then later on, after they've had food, to the subject of Johnny Fontaine, Waltz just erupts again and turns on this abuse once more. And again, Tom just politely thanks him for his hospitality and leaves. <laughs> and then you know we cut to the scene of that amazing house the next day at sunrise and then it goes to Walter's bedroom now Bill Butler shot this scene not Gordon Willis Bill Butler of course being the director of photography on Jaws three years later wow. now in the book guys which you guys were, I think would know and be able to confirm wasn't the horse's head stuck on to one of the bedposts yeah something like that it yeah. wasn't in the bed it was by the bed or near yeah. the bed, if I remember correctly. Now, the way it's done here, in the bed, with a slow reveal, I think is so much more effective. And it was a real horse's head from a dog food company where horses were slaughtered to make puppy chow. And 
that they saw the live horses at the factory that you know the crew went in they picked the one that they wanted and then when it was time for that horse to be slaughtered the, the head was taken or sent to the production in a, in a in a crate you know full of ice it, it's it's that slow reveal it's the fact that Walsh gets up and, and he feels that something's wrong maybe he feels that something's moist in in, in the bed and then mm. He, he sees blood and he's thinking, is this my blood? And then he throws the sheets back and it's that scream. The scream the Watts gives out. To think that, you know, when they were filming that, they probably would have had to do that time and time again, him getting into that bed with a real horse's head. That must have been traumatising. Can you imagine how that would have, that, that would smell? Yeah. Coppola talks about when, of, do you know the initial confrontation, the abuse Waltz gives Tom Hagen, as you said, and then they had this opulent meal. Yeah. That was like a, a show of two powers, Coppola called it. Waltz obviously had the upper hand because it was his house, and, you know, it was his terms and his surrounding. Nothing was going to frighten him and nothing was going to scare him. You could clearly see that he had staff waiting on him hand and foot in the room. And nothing was in Tom Hagen's favour yeah. until it's bedtime. Yeah. And what really sells it is apparently Coppola wanted blood and he wanted, he didn't want, he said, right, this, we're not going to have cotton sheets. He's a very wealthy man. He's got to have silk bed sheets. Yeah. And the silk sort of lends itself to the blood yeah it does the there's mi- something about silk as yeah. opposed to, you would imagine cotton would absorb the blood whereas silk almost repels exactly. it exactly and the combination that you used in making this blood they used some animal blood and they used various different um, other mixes it, it looks like that standard sort of corn syrup mix that they use as film blood Kyle yeah, Kyle yeah. do you know what I'm talking about that you would see it and it, all, it would almost look sticky yeah yeah <laughs> no exactly um, I Sorry to just piggyback off your point real quick, but you just like really said something that clicked with me. The fact that he's like, let's use silk sheets. This movie is like so detail oriented with everything and it's just meticulously. And I wanted to say it during the wedding scene too, but like, it's just like, I, for me, a movie's coming out before, they're really good, but they they never had someone caring so much about like detail. Like, Oh, this he's rich. He would have silk sheets. He the wedding, you know, the the music they're playing is all authentic. You know, you watch gangster movies before just for the the comparison and they weren't that accurate. And that accurate feeling and that that level of care really immerses you even more within the film. And they did use syrup on the they yeah. use just like a normal corn syrup blood yeah. uh in, in the film for most of it. All but very impressive. Uh, throughout the film for the most part there's some scenes where you're like okay uh but for the time i I think a lot of the gags hold up uh even even today i do like the cut then at the end of the scene when you the camera pulls back and you see the house and you can hear him screaming and then he cuts to don colioni and he just gives that little shrug as "Eh, it's whatever it's Mm -hmm. part of the course (laughs) yeah and that's i think in in the very next scene isn't we, we see vito tom and sonny discussing the issue with um salazzo and the drugs trade that he wants Don Corleone to be part of. Now, obviously, it's Vito's refusal to enter the drugs business that sparks this war with the other families. So this is another pivotal scene in the film. And when Paramount saw the scene, apparently, 
that where, where Vito meets with Salazzo, they hated the scene and felt that Brando was mumbling too much and, and Coppola then fearing again that he would be fired that coming weekend because he never thought that they'd fire him midweek. He reshot the scene, but not before he fired four of the crew whom he, whom he felt were going behind his back to the studio heads and reporting on him, including one of the assistant directors. So it's almost like a case of art imitating life with like sort of backstabbing and, you know, it. he clearly must have felt under the gun all the time. It, it, it was the, the Bain Films editor, uh, Amar Adrini, I think his name was, and he got his constant suspicion that the, the scene wasn't coming together, the performances weren't right. But by this point, I think Robert Evans and, and, and Alvaro had seen quite a lot of footage and were very impressed with it. Yeah. But because they were being fed back by spies, for want of a better word, they were coming back saying, no, this, this, is, this isn't working, this isn't working, this isn't working. And Coppola's been quite open about the amount of pressure that he was going to, the point where he wasn't sleeping. And a doctor had to come on set at one point to give him sedatives to ensure that he slept because he just wasn't sleeping. Because wow. of the constant exhaustion that he was under. Oh, if only he knew this would have been a breeze if he'd realised how <laughs> hard things would get for him on Apocalypse Now. Well, <laughs> he's probably praying for a Godfather when he was on. Oh, yeah. God, I yeah. wish it was like that. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating because there's the old adage of the worst film sets make for the best films. Oh, I agree, hundred percent. Because everybody's going through something be it, you know, exhaustion or physicality and, you know, illness and, and whatnot. But, you know, the, you, you see a lot of behind-the-scenes making of, or perhaps you have seen, and it's like, oh, it's the best experience I've had. And, you know, the results are there. And you watch the film and it's like, really? Was it? Because I don't see anything that you're talking about. Yeah. And yes, you are trying to sell a film to me. But then there are those occasions when it's like, well, no, our lead actor had a heart attack and he was only 36 and we had to take him up. We had to shut down production for X amount of time. And yeah. we blew up, you know, this jungle and Coppola almost thrives on that pressure, if you think about it. Yeah. Because that constant suspicion. And at the end of the day, he's the director. He had that power to go, right, it's it's that person, that person, that person. Get rid of them. If they're out of the yes. equation, then nothing further can happen. And it, there's definitely, there's a leadership quality in Coppola that time and time again in the making of, of this film comes out. Fast forward now to the scene where, where, where Vito is shot. And then you've got that top down, down view of New looking down um, onto the car and onto the street where you see him fall behind the car after he gets shot. And Gordon Willis, he, he said to Coppola, right, hang on, why now are we going to some sort of God's eye point of view? We're trying to tell this story at a sort of ground level, on a character level. Who... Who is this shot for? Who is the, the viewpoint here supposed to represent? And he angrily responded. Coppola said, it's it's my point of view. It's it's the shot I want. And he <laughs> knew what he wanted. And even if it was something on the day that he was coming up with that he hadn't pre-planned and hadn't been done you know, in, in, a, in the scripting stage, he still knew very much what he wanted from his actors, from his crew, from everyone. You know, The way he conducted himself throughout the making of this film... And I think the single greatest addition to The Godfather is the fact that they chose an Italian-American to, to make it. And it was an Italian-American that was obsessed with the little details, something which I'll come to later. Like you say, Kyle, it's the level of detail in the film. 
And it's like Jerome said in, in the in the responses I read at the beginning of the episode about the fact that you, on repeat viewings, you just find these little details. And even on my most recent viewings of this film in prep for this episode, I've seen things, and I've seen this film umpteen times, but I've picked out little things which I'd never noticed before. Things like when, and you guys may have seen it much earlier, but I, ne- I never noticed that when Luca Brazzi meets Bruno Tatalian Salazzo, that when he's walking into that bar or whatever it is, there's two fish on the door. On, on the glass door and obviously later on we're going to have the thing of Luca Brassi sleeps sleep. through the fishes but there's that little foretelling of what's going to happen to him with, with the, the fish motif that I've never even picked up on before there was something with Paulie who gets shot in the back of the car with the, the Statue of Liberty in the background yeah. that's stunning stunning shot when uh, the FBI agents are out the front taking the number plates Jimmy Khan comes out and he spits on the floor and the guy's taking photos. Jimmy Khan ad lib smashing up the picture and checking the money. But if you look at Paulie, Paulie's giving the finger to all the FBI agents. I've never noticed it. I've never noticed until that. my one of my okay. like one of my most recent screenings because he's a, he's a, he's a bit of a jerk, isn't he, Paulie? You know. Yes. And you know he's the one who's clearly set things up, and you know that's why that infamous scene comes about. Yeah. But it was with little things like that. I've got to be honest, guys. I must have watched this film about. 10 times in the last six months mm. just because it's a case of you seeing these little things you notice in yeah. the little things every single time and they're talking about a film i've seen before this 10 times before but i don't know why it, it just it, it's just and because of the reading that i've been doing and it's enveloping and it's consuming and it's yeah. fascinating. And I think the reason like, I've never seen paulie doing that giving them the finger is because in that scene when i play back in my head all i can see it's James Khan. James Khan, yeah, absolutely. It's indicative. It's much like scenes, for example, in Goodfellas, the little background characters are doing things that you only notice after you've watched it for the 20th time. And it's like, I've never noticed that guy making a gesture to someone that, yeah. you know, they're acknowledging somebody else in the room type thing. And it's, it's amazing. Amazing. So then after that scene, Luca then, you know, as I say, he meets a Bruno Italian Salazzo. He gets his hand stabbed into the bar and he gets garroted. And because... Coppola wanted to make every death in the film unique and memorable. And I, I always thought that when he goes, he goes like a sort of beetroot red, doesn't he? I yeah. I just thought that was him. You know, like when you sort of hold your breath and, and make your the sort of blood pressure, you know, go up. I thought that that was just him doing that. But apparently they used a special makeup on him that it, it activates when it gets wet and turns dark. And they had someone just spraying uh, a fine mist on Lenny Montana off screen, which turned his face dark as if being strangled. And when I, after reading that fact... And then watching the film again, you actually see, yeah, it actually goes dark in a way that you can't make it go yourself. Like as if your head is being starved of oxygen. Apparently as well, when um, they were filming the scene, Coppola was saying, right, this is going to happen, so I want a, I want a big reaction. And he, apparently he went into the reaction he used to do in a wrestling match and everything is, is exaggerated and everything is over the top and everything is, you know, a little bit larger than life. Hence why... He, He's all his eyes are yeah, his eyes are bulging. His, his tongue is out. Yeah, 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 and you know, and it's and it's you know he's he's thick, well he's he's literally nailed to the, the wall, isn't he? He yeah. can't go anywhere, and you know that's why he was such a you know a, 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 an exhilarating scene almost, isn't it? Because of it, everything coming together. Do you know the bit that gets me most though, like about that scene before he gets stabbed? Though is the way that doesn't Salazzo put his hand on his hand? 
Yeah. And it's yeah. like just an uncomfortable bit of And there's there's a slight nod just before it yeah. as well, isn't there? Yeah. Just a, just a just a just a little movement of the heads. Um the violence in this film as and it is graphic. And it is graphic, but compared to modern times it isn't. If you sort of transpose it then from the nineteen seventies when it was made to the nineteen forties when it was set. What's the James Cagney films? Uh, Public Enemy, is it? Public Enemy. Yeah. White Heat. White yeah, Heat, White yeah, right. Ima- imagine like a 1970 film transposed to that time, but being allowed to give that level of violence. It sort of fits in, if that makes yeah. any sort of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, of course, yeah. And 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 I think, it, and it is visceral, the violence. It is, you know, tactile almost, isn't it? You know, you can, when, like you say, like the knife through the hand and the, the garrote in, and it, 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 it's affecting and it, it's purposeful. It's tastefully yeah, yeah. done. It, they wouldn't do it as well as they did in the 70s if they made this movie today because it would be even over even more stylized and more bloody and I think each kill whatever you want to call it, each you know fatality is just tastefully done and there still is some gruesome moments. Mo Green getting a bullet in the eye. <laughs> Oh yeah, hell yeah! And the way they did that as well yeah. was crazy. Yeah. That's my favorite gag in the film. It just looks good still. It was just really yeah. well done. And then, obviously, Vito now is you know he he's kind of set the seeds for this kind of war that's to follow. So Tom then gets taken by Salazzo, and then we have the shooting of Vito Corleone, and he's picking oranges at a grocery stand, and orange oranges seem to preclude death or peril for him in this film because because the film was so dark when they shot it. Oranges were used in shot to brighten the scenes up, apparently. Wow. Everybody sort of assumed, well, you see somebody handing an orange that indicates death is near. It was simply a case of, well, we had so many browns, we had so many this, we had so many yeah, that. Yeah. We had to put colour in somewhere. And yeah. uh, I, whether or not he's just playing with, your, with you know, the, the interviewee or whatnot, but that's what's been said, apparently. And then Fredo fumbles his gun and drops it. Now, guys... Let's talk about what could end up being a future episode of Film 89. Let's talk about the remarkable career and tragically oh. short career of John Cazale. Unbelievable. Oh, he was just amazing, wasn't he? Five he was. films. He made five films and, in his short career. And every single one was nominated for Best Picture. Everyone was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. And so you've, got the, you've got The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and the deer hunter. And he never got a nomination himself, did he? No. And surely, if you're going to base an actor's quality of an actor's career on their filmography, that would surely make John Cazale the greatest actor ever to live. Because each one of his films is, in his own right, arguably a masterpiece. Yeah. He, he was he was very close friends with Al Pacino, wasn't he, through the New York theatre circuit? Yeah. Cazale... Did he get cast after or before Pacino? But it was it was certainly that he, he certainly came on the radar at, at a similar time. There's a there's a documentary I forget the name of it about him. I think it was only released in the last four years. It's mesmerising to see the people coming out because they have such affection, and everybody knew how good an actor he was, and yes. he was struck down in the prime of his acting career. He was. He was yeah. thirty six. Was he when he died? Thirty five, thirty six. Yeah, he was. He was. He was with Meryl Streep at the time. Wasn't yeah, he? they, they yeah. got married as well. Did they just before he died? Yeah, and um, the only reason she was in the uh, Deer Hunter was because they knew that it was going to be his last film. 
Yeah, wow. so that was his last film. And wow. De, De Niro, they, they, they couldn't get insurance for him to make the Deer Hunter. De yeah. Niro paid for the insurance out of his own pocket to ensure that he was in the film because he was gravely ill through the shooting of it. To the point where I think if you rewatch the Deer Hunter, especially the wedding scene and when they they go up on that last trip before they go to Vietnam. Oh, he, the, the the actual deer hunting scene. Yeah, and they, they come out to the jeep and everything. He's almost standoffish to everybody else because yeah. he was he was frail and he was ill and you know he didn't have a lot of strength. But De Niro was determined to have his friend around because, um, yeah. well, it's absolutely staggering. I mean, the conversation in itself is a genius, genius yeah, film. Beautiful film, beautiful. It's, it's, but his like his even like his role in that is kind of on a par with his role in this film. He's not in it that much, no, really, is he? No, no. But then you've got Dog Day Afternoon, where he is literally one of the two leads. That is one. It genuinely is one of my favorite films of all time. You've got The Godfather Part 2 then where his role is significantly more than he was in this film. Did you, did you say he wasn't nominated, Steve? For no, I don't think, he, I think I was, he was nominated. I was going to say, I'm like, I know you can't nominate everyone from that film, but Not he's even, arguably but, but, the second best performance for me in that movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Everything hinges around Fredo, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 100%. Wow. That's wild. A, a career like, you know, tragically short. Just what a, shy, a sign of respect from De Niro for doing the insurance. Like, Absolutely, just that that's yeah. how much talent that guy had. He's like, I will do this. And not only because it's his friend and he wanted to be with his friend, but it's like, no, this guy's that good. We're going to make sure he's in this movie. That's just mm. what a sign of respect. That's just amazing. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to find the name of the documentary because it's genuinely, uh, it's it's really heart affirming, more than um, life affirming. Is that yeah. them? I knew it was you. I, I can't remember, Steve. I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to have a look. But it's it, it's got a bunch of talking heads, and yeah. Meryl Streep is in there, and you know it's it's probably hit her more than anybody. It's it's such a it's worth finding, genuinely worth finding, because everybody everybody talks about him the same. And he was you know? fearless as well, because none of his characters are that likable. He's usually the loser, as he is, you know, in The Godfather. Yeah. You know, he is the one that people often overlook, and yet he's also the one who wants to be out front, but he hasn't got the skills, he hasn't got the the DNA to do that. Yeah, it's it's like the whole this is this scene in Deer Hunter, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And yeah. it's, you know, the scene in um, The Godfather Part Two, and, you know, he's saying, you know, I. You know, it was always going to be you going to be in the army, and uh, suddenly he was going to be the one to take over. How about me, you know? And, yeah. Uh, oh, I, I can hear him now. His, his yeah. delivery of. But yeah. what about you know? What about me? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm your older brother. Oh, it's just wow. Anyway, we'll come to that on a later episode. I think we should. We should yeah, I think we this have is probably a good idea. Yeah. Oh yeah. So after we see we see Vito getting shot, then Michael is with Kay. And and they they you know they've just come out of a film. When when Michael is looking at, at the newspaper, reporting his father having been shot, those newspaper inserts were shot by none other than, let's go back a few episodes, George Lucas, who's helping Coppola shoot the film. And then as you mentioned, then Leighton, you know the the this, the scene with Paulie getting shot. This has always been a, a shot that I've I've always liked. There's something about it on my most recent couple of viewings of it is that perfect framing with the Statue of Liberty in the background where you see the car, you know, parked in 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 like the the long grass. And this goes back to what you say, Kyle, about the level of detail in this film. And this is something that just 
this typifies Coppola's approach to this film. If you look in the car window, you can see an A on, on like a sticker or a card, which was the gas rationing card for that model of car at the time, like 1945 or 1946 or whatever it is, which was a little bit of specific period detail that mostly everyone else who watched the film won't notice, but Coppola insisted on. And it is that level of detail and authenticity that makes these films, certainly the first two films, so remarkable. And then, of course, there's you know, Richard Castellano's improvised line, leave the gun and take the cannolis, which, you know, improvised. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it it's right on point. And that's just getting your actors, like, just perfectly in their situations. And it's like, yeah. and it's it also, allows that. It's also the contracts between, you know, the murder and the family. But the scene that comes before it with Sonny and the way he deals with Paulie, are you okay, you okay? You know, because he, he was obviously, he was unwell. He called in sick the day that uh, Vito was shot. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm okay, Sonny. He goes, yeah, when you go and, you know, get, you know, get some honey or whatever, or whatever, he says, get some rem- you know, take some remedy. You know, go, go and rest up. And as soon as the door closes, I want that son of a bitch gone. <laughs> Make him disappear. And it, it, do it, do it, do it next thing on your list. And it's just... It's, um, I think James Caan is magnetic, isn't he, as, as Sonny, because yeah. he's big and he's brash and he's very much a heart on his sleeve type of guy. Whereas, you know, within the mafioso, everybody is sort of, as I said earlier, knowing looks, gestures, yeah. quite reserved, stoic almost. Well, certainly a lot of them are stoic and nothing is sort of blown out of proportion. You know, as is referred to, isn't it, about um, the famous hot-headedness he's he's amazing and when you when you you look later in his career then and you you look at him as sunny and then you see him in misery where he's like this man bound to a bed bound to a wheelchair you know the contrast and performances and they're both brilliant performances amazing fair play oh yeah god for me his greatest performance will always be in thief oh my god yeah. yeah Oh, yeah. Thief and do you know do you know what guys one right that doesn't get and I know a lot of it you could say is a physical performance but my god there's a lot to be said about rollerball and especially yeah, yeah. in what we've had these last couple of years with the way that that film comments on some of the recent times we've been going through. That's a great film. Certainly the you know the thing in America and you know corporations being in control and stuff like that. That is definitely a film I'd love to talk about on an episode. I thought you were going to say Honeymoon of Vegas. I still need to then. see it. Have you not seen the card? I have not. I still need oh, to see it. Oh, it's amazing. It's 1975. Norman Jewison is a director that, yeah, he's, he's made a couple of films, I think, that really don't get the credit they deserve. Avoid the John McTiernan remake. Oh. oh, hell yeah. God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Jesus. that's what I was thinking of. Okay. No, no. Is, okay, I'm like, I know that film and it's not great. And that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. I will check yeah, out yeah. the original, though. That, that sounds, oh, yeah. That sounds awesome. One of the greatest posters ever as well, the original Rollerball has. It's brilliant. Brilliant film. Yeah. Obviously, now, after Vito gets shot, and then, you know, they, you've got a little scene with Clemenza showing Michael how to make the, 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 the tomato sauce, as he says it. And then that always reminds me of the prison scene in Goodfellas with a slice <laughs> of the garlic. Yeah. Yeah. Every exactly. time. I and, always think and, of that. Do you know when he's, he's showing him how to shoot? Right? Um, yeah, that, in the basement. Yeah, that, yeah. that gun there is actually, I can't remember the name of the man, but he. It, is, it's Sonny Grosso. Yeah. From, the, from uh, the French Connection. French from Connection. the French Connection. Yeah. 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 It's, it's actually his it, service It's his revolver. service revolver. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, because later on, when uh, Captain McCluskey turns up outside the hospital and says for Michael to be taken in, 
the cop who says he's clean, Captain, he's a war hero. That yes. is Sonny Grosso mm-hmm. playing that cop. Obviously, one of the two real-life cops, cops on whom the French Connection was based and who was played by Roy Scheider in Friedkin's film the year before. And Grosso had been introduced to Coppola by William Friedkin and he was actually the working technical advisor on The Godfather. And as you say, Steve, the gun that we see Michael use when he takes out McCluskey and yeah. Salato is apparently Sonny Grosso's service revolver that he had and kept. Wow. So then the scene that follows with... Michael and Kay in the hotel room. Um, it's kind of like almost like the goodbye scene, isn't it? Because I don't think they see each other. No. Because obviously after that, Michael does what he does. Now apparently that hotel room scene was set up for real when Coppola had them meet and and have dinner together and really get to know each other. And Coppola believes that that what he did there was the genesis of the romance that apparently blossomed between the two actors, who I didn't know until recently pregnant for this episode that those two were in a relationship for, for some time afterwards is that common knowledge yeah, yeah. i knew that yeah i did not know yeah. that those two were in a relationship yeah he was seeing um jill clayberg she's been in loads of things over the years yeah he, he literally set them up in a hotel like and, and encouraged them to stay in the same hotel room to get to know each other you know <laughs> i well it went from reading lines to uh, well there yeah. we are so, <laughs> and then we move on to again one of one of my favourite scenes in the film, and I just think it's purely from a point of view of the atmosphere that the, film, that the scene sets is the hospital scene with Michael, and then later joined by Enzo, the baker, helping yeah, son, yeah. protect an unguarded Vito who Clemenza's men have been pulled away from. All those shots of empty corridors, which which is like ominous and setting up the fact that you know that this hospital is, is like eerily empty and, and anyone could come at any point and take out the dawn all of those shots were something that Coppola later realised that he needed after principal photography had wrapped so instead of shooting pickups at an additional cost he asked George Lucas to look at the beginnings and endings of takes to see if there was any trims of shots of empty corridors that they could use and lo and behold Lucas found enough stuff for Coppola to use which if you watch the film yeah did the footsteps sounds it yes. everything to echo yeah, the footsteps of Enzo. Yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna say even before that 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 scene has shades of his Corman days, but even with him doing that, makes it even feel like a little bit of a Roger Corman movie. Just pulling things together—that's that's amazing. That's so it's, hard, yeah. it's, it's shot like yeah. a horror film, isn't it? It's yeah, like that's it, exactly what. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. And, and it's spooky, and you know, this tension in every it's shot. เอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อเอ่อ
where we see Enzo's hands shaking as he's lighting a cigarette when they're stood outside. But Michael actually takes time to look at his hands and the fact that they're not shaking mm. because maybe it's because he was, you know, he, he fought in World War Two, or maybe it's just because that's the sort of steely cool character he is that something like that. It's in his DNA. He's able to maintain. Yes, yeah, in his DNA, you can maintain control. And there's the infamous lineman with you now, isn't it? You know, where Vito, is, you can see a slight tear because he realizes that his youngest favorite son is, yeah. you know, is now accepting the mantle and knows that he's going to be taking responsibility, and he's yeah. he's, he's he's upset by it. And I was listening to a, another podcast about the Godfather, and one of them said. You don't realise how emotion, emotional a man Don Vito is as the film progresses. He cries yeah. regularly. He's it's in, like he's it's like he softens as he gets older. Absolutely, than like, you know. absolutely, and you know he, he's 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 long past the, the the De Niro phase then, for want of a better word. But <laughs> yes, you know, certainly. he 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 is an older man. He can see the ramifications in life and on what the impact that has on family, not necessarily his own. It's other people's family and. He can see the impact that has, and he softens, and things upset him, and things, you know, as the, um, moments progress in the film, you see Brando. Let's get out of the way. Brando's performance is is noted for the voice and for his mannerisms and his ticks and everything. Brando was forty seven years old when he made yeah. this film. He ha- his makeup was done by Dick Smith, who did Max von Sydow's in this, The Exorcist, who was forty three at the time when he made that film, right? And Dick Smith, largely renowned in the makeup industry anyway, but you just look at those two performances together. Men no, we, the... we talked about him on the Taxi Driver episode, Yeah, didn't yeah, we? exactly, right? And it's, it's astonishing that a man, yeah. and Brando, by all accounts, was fit as a fiddle at that time. Well, hey, Leighton, look, you know, whilst we're on the thing, let's talk about the casting of Brando, because Coppola apparently had said to Fred Bruce, who is the greatest living actor? Now, Brando, by that point, had almost become box office poison yeah, well, and yeah. notoriously difficult to work with. Apparently, Laurence Olivier had been considered, but he was in poor health at the time. And like you say, Brando was only 47, and Puzo had said that Brando had been the first person he considered for Vito. But Paramount, they, they, they just kept insisting that he would never get the role and, and later relented. But then, when they did, they put down three stipulations. Firstly, the Brando would have to do a screen test. You would have to do the film for free. And he would also have to put up a bond that guaranteed any losses due to any potential shenanigans from him. And I think the one that Coppola was most concerned about is how he would get Marlon Brando to do a screen test. Yeah, and they did the, they did the makeup test and they said, right, Marlon, we're going to do a makeup test. We're going to film you. We wanted to walk around the room. If you could, you know, do something with your hair, that'd be great. But I, we want to put this makeup on you. So they had Dick Smith, they had Brando's own makeup artist come in just to sort of pacify him somewhat. Brando apparently had long hair and a ponytail and he put boot polish through it and, and all yeah. the rest. And they did this thing and literally the first screen test they did, it was Don Vito Corleone, which is yeah. absolutely staggering when you think yeah, about... Yeah, he, he put the tissue paper in his mouth yeah, and all yeah, that yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then, he knew it was going to be a screen test, I think. Yeah, he probably did, didn't he? But yeah. like, it's like when you look, when you see him on screen, he's like, he, he has a, a gait of a man, an elderly man. He has that movement of a little bit of stiffness. And, you know, apparently the choice of his voice was down to the fact that he envisioned that Don Vito had been shot in the neck previously and that lent to the way that he spoke and little things like that. And it never came to pass in the film, but it just works and it, it does yeah. just work. Well, you, you mentioned Dick Smith there, Leighton. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that, that famous push-in shot on Michael 
when he comes up with a plan to kill both Slots or McCluskey and he's talking. But he's just talking out through one side of his mouth. Yeah. Because they actually wired Pacino's jaw shut for, shut yeah. for those scenes after McCluskey breaks his jaw. Yeah. And yeah. That, was, that, was, that, was, that was the doing of Dick Smith. Yeah. And, and, Wire his jaw shut. And again, it's these little things that lead to this massive, massive hole. And and, the, and again, and I've said it already, but like when you when you watch on a repeated view and you notice that new thing, that one little thing, and it's it's got such a big part to play, and it's it's remarkable. And again, like I said, everybody can parody um, Brando and Infinitum, can't they? You know, because everybody's mm. got their own version. Yeah. Even, uh, does everybody know the the, the the bit from The Simpsons with um, Mo? babysitting baby Lisa and he's and it's like right it's time for you to go to bed now I'm going to read you a bedtime story what story you know and he, he repeats the godfather to her right and he does voices <laughs> and everything it's genius it, it, it's prime Simpsons I will say it's prime Simpsons but um, but Brando's you know voice I, was based on a real character though he was based on Frank Costello who was a mafia don in the 40s and 50s and he was on TV a lot at the time um, in the 60s because he was, you know, all the um, um, hearings they had into the mafia. Yeah. And, you know, he ha- he was probably sh- been shot in the throat, I don't know. But, yeah, Frank Costello was the voice that he based his uh, he's He's the guy. He's the guy, Steve. That when they did, much like Michael in part two, when they go through the committee, before the committees and everything, when it was broadcast on TV, they didn't show him from the head up. So all you saw was his body. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What about this McCluskey? Huh? What do we do with this copy? They want to have a meeting with me, right? It will be me, McCluskey, and Salenzo. Let's set the meeting. Get our informers to find out where it's going to be held. Now, we insist it's a public place, a bar, a restaurant, some place where there's people so I feel safe. They're going to search me when I first meet them, right? So I can't have a weapon on me then. But if Clemenza can figure a way to have a weapon planted there for me, Then I'll kill them both. <laughs> hey, what are you going to do? Nice college boy, huh? Didn't want to get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You got to get him close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. Come here. You're taking this very personal. Tom, this is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Where does it say that you can't kill a cop? Come on, Mikey. Tom, wait a minute. I'm talking about a cop that's mixed up in drugs. I'm talking about a, a, a dishonest cop, a crooked cop who got mixed up in the rackets and got what was coming to him. That's a terrific story. And we have newspaper people on the payroll, don't we, Tom? They might like a story like that. They might. They just might. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. 
So obviously we've 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 had there, guys. One of the key scenes, haven't we, with Michael when he when he's got his jaw wired shut, is when Michael formulates the plan and kind of tells Sonny and Tom and everyone else what he's going to do. Um, we we we've said how he goes from being this guy who doesn't want to follow in his father's footsteps, doesn't kind of implies to Kay that he, this this is my family, Kay. This is not me. But then the way things work out, he becomes embroiled in this sort of attempt on his father's life. And then through necessity to protect his father and the rest of his family has to step up and it's that slow push in on al pacino and he says you know if you can put a gun there then then i'll kill them both yeah and then sunny's response is what are you gonna do well yeah, yeah. They, they all kind of make light of it <laughs> yeah but, yeah which but kind of takes away from yeah. from the intensity of, of, of pacino's yeah. acting yeah. but then if that right is pacino just at the top of his game my god the scene that follows where they, they pick Michael up, he agrees to the meet, and then Solazzo and, and, and McCluskey pick him up, and then they take him to, and he, and he says, you, you know, when he sees the sign, are we, are we going to Queens? Yeah. Or does he say Brooklyn? No, it's New Jersey. Yeah. New Jersey. New Jersey. We're going to New Jersey? Yeah. yeah maybe. Yeah. yeah. Because obviously there's this plan to put a you know a gun in, and it's a it, little bit convenient to test you. Yeah, yeah, I know that restaurant. Yeah, it's the old-fashioned <laughs> toilets. So, Tessio, are you an expert on the... Um, the, the the facilities in Italian American restaurants uh, in in Greater New York. <laughs> Watching that yesterday. Yeah. That's so funny. Oh really? Well, you you know a lot about the toilets in that restaurant, do you, uh, Tessio? Like, it's not hanging out in Queens. It's like, come on, dude. <laughs> but but then in the book, Clemenza would often, if they were told they had to go and do an assignment, he would always stop off and have a meal on, on the route to anywhere they were going. So, you know, Clemenza might have been the, the guy to say, like, well, yeah, what about, you know, what about Louis, you know, in in Brooklyn or whatever it is? And, yeah. you know, they've got these old tight toilets and all the rest. But, uh, no, it, it, the scene when, when you come up to Louis' restaurant is oh, just, yeah. wow. You said you said about the horse's head being your favourite. That, yes. that is my favourite sequence of this film because, yeah. again. It, yeah, it could be mine as well. It, yeah, it could. It, it's it's tension isn't it and you know the hospital is bad it was tension which was bad enough but this you you know there's got to be a violent outcome from it yeah yeah and, and it's the build-up of the sound of the l train in the background yeah, yeah, the L-train, train, you, know, yeah. you don't need music you just need that no. squeal no, in the background it's, building yeah, it's diegetic sound isn't it yeah 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 diegetic course yeah. and i hadn't you know like i said i hadn't seen this film for quite a long time and something i'd forgotten i thought maybe it was a problem with my blu-ray but when salazzo is talking to Michael in Italian. There, there's no subtitles. No, there's in that not. Scene. No, 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 no. It's just a smart choice. No, yeah, it really was because they they use enough words like tu padre, and he says oh, something like he's, he's he's antique. He's what happened apparently is that they would speak um, not Al Pacino necessarily because Al Pacino could speak Italian, but Alitieri he could speak Sicilian. Yeah. yeah, and he was speaking so fast the subtitles apparently wouldn't have kept up with the way that he was speaking. As much yeah. as we think Italian people speak fast, or French people, uh, French people speak fast, or um, Welsh people speak fast, even subtitle when you try to make a film in English is very difficult. Apparently, and that's why you find that the, the conversion from the tra- or oh, sorry the translation is very simplistic. Then, for want of a better word, but Coppola purposely didn't do it because they were speaking so fast. He wanted the audience to try and guess what they were saying to each other. Yeah, that's why. Pacino at, 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 at a point breaks into English, doesn't he? 
and he speaks a little bit of English to Salozzo and then it's the case of I need to go to the bathroom and everything is building and ramping and then it's you know the search of him to make sure and he's gone I've I've, I've McCluskey's like I've searched he him. said yeah I've I fr- I frisked the thousand I've frisked him pumped. he's clean isn't it? you know once he's <laughs> yeah. filling his face like you know he's not bothered he's yeah. having a free meal at the end of the day isn't it yeah Do you, and that's the line he says he says what's, what's, what's the Italian food like in this joint and it's like you're in an Italian restaurant <laughs> and you're asking what the Italian food is like for real. It just goes to show, because he, he's shown that he's got these, because you know, people forget that Italian-Americans back, you know, were seen as like sort of, they were looked down upon and they were they were the subject of, of, of kind of racism when, when they first came to America and then subsequently, you know, as the Irish were and any other you know, number of groups. And clearly McCluskey and there was this thing between the Irish and the Italian Americans that you know there was this tension and clearly McCluskey is you know, he harbors these these sort of racial prejudices and, and the way he delivers our lie I just think you're just such a dick you know <laughs> but you know that this is clearly for me I think maybe the pivotal scene in the film maybe even the greatest scene like you say late and you've got that, that patient build-up which is the key isn't it yeah there's no turning back no, no, that's right. I think it's Pacino's acting here, which is truly next level. I think maybe even the best he's ever been, which I, I know he's saying something, but watching it recently and just watching that he's not even, it's not even what he's saying, it's the way he looks and the stuff going on behind his eyes and that brilliant idea, like you say, Steve, that Walter Murch had to use the screeching sound of the nearby L train that was kind of coming to a halt to accentuate this explosion from Michael, you know, this, this build-up of violence, which is just a touch of genius. Mm-hmm. And got to say it, Alateri as well as Salotto is so good in this scene. And Coppola says that this is probably the scene that saved him from being fired from the picture. Do you know we were talking about the the, the uh, scene with the the horse's head and the blood and whatnot. Coppola wanted when the bullet impact happened in their faces. He wanted like a mist. Yes, he did. Yeah, like a spray yeah. of blood, which is it, which is in the film. But they they, they shot is, yeah. they shot it something crazy amount of times, and <laughs> Aidan Sterling was so full of spaghetti at at one point he's like I can't do this anymore <laughs> like you know I've eaten spaghetti for the last 10 hours I cannot do <laughs> anymore and but it just show, goes to show that you know these practical effects effects are more effective than modern special effects a lot of the time aren't they Oh, 100%, yeah. But, um, no, it's it's astonishing. And apparently, when the L train was going over the, the, the restaurant on a regular basis, when when they actually got the scene that Coppola really liked, they didn't have the train going over at the same time, so they used a sound edit from the previous one to sort of build up with the moment that Michael is sort of looking into the distance, knowing what he's got to do. And they use that yeah. sound effect instead, and it just builds, and it builds, and it's just well we all well it's, it's the best scene in the film there's no ways about as far as i'm concerned yeah, i agree the editing choice to linger on that last shot of pacino too uh just to keep that tension at a certain point it doesn't even matter what Salazzo's saying it's like it's just we're in his head it's just it's one of my favorite shots and also editing choices ever in a movie where we're just like literally 
the, his eyes are just telling the story. Like you said, Sky, it's like he doesn't even have to say a word at a certain points. Like yeah, his no. eyes are just telling you everything you need to know. And it's, it's just brilliant. Yeah. I think it was day after this scene originally there was going to be an intermission, but Bob Evans said, nope, no intermission. Don't allow the tension to let up. And thank God. Yeah, you don't want time to breathe, do you? Because I think it's at the, the one hour and 31 minute that we've got that transition from Vito lying in bed after being told that Michael was the one that killed Salato McCluskey. An amazing, amazing performance from Brando where he just sort of kind of kind of pushes him away. Now, go, go away, go away. I, you know, I, I, can't, you know not, I can't deal with this. Not Michael. I wanted something else for Michael. And without even saying that, he says it in just a look. But he already knows because Michael has said to him, I'm with you, isn't it, in the hospital? And it's, it's almost like that the, the tear is like, no, it can't be you. It can't be you. It can't be you. And then when when he's told and he's gone to Sicily and it, he's heartbroken, isn't he? He's, and he's got, he's showing with the gifts of his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren probably as well, isn't he? You know, yeah. and it's just like he's he's bereft. And he, like you say, he's, like, he's just lying in bed. The guy's just lying in bed. And he's, everything yeah. is through um, like a move of the head or the, the move of an arm is... I'm running out of superlatives to say about him in the film. It's just truly, truly, truly amazing. And then it's at that point then that we've got the transition from Vito lying in bed to Michael in Sicily and the courtship of Apollonia. And then again, this is all about for me. This is this is about seeing Michael and the way that he deals with people and situations. We saw him the way he dealt with the hospital, subsequently stepping up and killing Salato McCluskey. But it's the way that he deals with Apollonia's father after him and his two companions accidentally insult him and the way that they were talking about about his daughter and that's like another big signpost as to michael's suitability as an as a replacement it's negotiation isn't it yeah it's the diplomacy he uses yeah. isn't it for by by turning a negative situation to his advantage by the way he deals with apollonia's father it's and also the fact that he is now in charge I mean, yes. yeah. You know, even yeah. though it's it's only a small group he's in charge, this is it. This is the time when he has yeah. stepped forward and he is becoming the don. Yeah, yeah. It, the one thing I've always found weird about this, though, is you know he's literally it's not even a month. I don't think since he's been in Italy, since he's he's had to flee, as you said about the dummy with Kay and all the rest, and he's done what he's he's had to do. He's gone to Sicily, and it's like. Oh, I'm not seeing anybody back home, honestly. You know, I, I, <laughs> I've literally just met the first girl that I've bumped into. And, you know, as they say, isn't it? You know, you've been struck by like a thunder or lightning or whatever it thunderbolt, is. Yeah. Thunderbolt, And fair play, the way that scene is shot is amazing because Pacino's got that stare, isn't it? And it's just like, you can tell everything he's thinking behind his eyes. But in that scene, it's just a case of I'm now in love with another woman and fuck that girl in America, right? Because I'm marrying this girl. There's no two ways about it. It's her. And it's yeah. just, and like you said, you're referring to about like the lushness of the music and everything shot in Sicily is almost overexposed because everything is so bright compared to everything. It is, isn't it? Everything being in, in Long Island, I think it is, or Staten Island even in, in when they're in New York and whatnot, everything is so dark and apparently that's a Robert, specific choice for sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. But because um, going back to Robert Evans, he when they were, they saw the first rushes of the film, he apparently said to people, "The no one of the notes back is why is everybody wearing sunglasses inside a dark room because you couldn't <laughs> see the lights because it was that dark." But then 
you've got to have that contrast, haven't you? Because everything in America is shit at the moment, isn't it? And Michael now in, in Sicily, everything is just glorious and you know, euphoric and bright and there's a there's a future and, and everything that goes along with that. I think he chooses Apollonia for his wife though, because he realizes what his future is going to be then. And he wants a Don's wife rather than an independent thinking non Italian one. Yeah, well, it's like Morgana King, isn't it? She was Sicilian. Yes. Yeah. His, you know, uh, Vito's wife, and I think it, it carries, you know, it carries more weight if you're going to be the Don to have a Sicilian wife. Yeah, you want somebody who won't ask questions, who will accept her place, who, you know, he he, he doesn't have to explain himself. Whereas Kay is an independent modern woman, and she is the complete opposite of who he wants, you know? And and that later in the film, he does try and turn Kay into that, but it never yeah. quite works, does it? No, and that's, no. And that's where the tension in the later films comes from, is the um, between um, Michael and Kay, because she realises who he is, and he, she realises the the impact of it, and she doesn't accept it. Well, the, the, class, the classic sort of example is that, is of her turning up to the wedding and she's got this bright orange dress on with this massive yeah. um, floppy hat on, isn't it? And then when Michael is in Sicily, she actually goes to the Corleone compound then, for want of a better word, isn't it? And everything is dark and everything is miserable and every, all, all the gangsters wearing grey and black and what have you. She turns up and she's in a bright red coat and a bright red dress with red Have you noticed... That she can she turns up in the brightest taxi cab ever, like exactly. yellow and red well, one. There we are, then. Yeah, that you know, you're having these bursts of of bright colours to as going back to the orange uh, theory to to lighten up all these very very dark scenes. And she is a little bit of a ray of light in some respect for the story to progress, albeit yeah. we all know what happens. But you know, her popping up, she's a she's a bright light, isn't it? But then yeah. as the film progresses towards the end, she's muted. Her colours are starting to mute. Her hair changes yeah. significantly. And it's these choices made constantly for the storytelling and the, the, the visual storytelling as well. Never mind the, the, the written word. Yeah. It's those those visual choices. And then after some time in Sicily, we cut, back, we cut back to New York and Sonny finds out that Connie's been hit around by Carlo. And then we have that scene of Sonny giving Carlo a well-deserved, but i got to say it, less than perfectly choreographed. Because, <laughs> guys, some of those punches and kicks don't even come close to looking like they connect. But I will say, still, it's ten times better than the grocery store scene in The Irishman. <laughs> yes, take this all day. <laughs> I'll give you that one, Sky. I will give yeah. you that one. James Kahn found his two-tone shoes in a, yeah. like a junk store and they were a size too small or they were a bit too tight to him and he wore them throughout the filming to give him that strut to give him that mm. walk also in that scene he asked for a broom handle bit on the car so when they pulled up you throw it at Carlo and Carlo yeah. wouldn't be expecting it and apparently even the first or second time he did it he actually hit uh, Gianni Gianni is it Gianni Russo yeah he caught him on the back of the head and they fucking hated each other anyway, apparently. They really, really hated each other. Which so, is maybe why he did it. Well, exactly, right? But apparently the bin was an improvised hit that wasn't in the script and Johnny Russo said that he chipped a bone in his elbow as a result of it and all the rest and uh, 
And Jimmy Khan was like, uh, no, I gave him, you know, fake kicks to the ribs. Johnny Russo says he cracked two of his ribs when he was lying in the get there with a fire extinguisher, you know, soaking him and all these kids in the streets hanging around him and everything. It, my my favourite bit lately. The bite. You're going to say the bite. Please say the bite. The bite. Yes, of course. Yeah. When he bites his finger. It's, it's, it's foreshadowed. Trying to bite his knuckle. Yes, it's foreshadowed. He hears about Con- when he turns up to see Connie and she's got the black yeah. eye and everything. And what's the first thing he does? He bites, bites his, his own knuckles. Bites his own knuckle. And what does he yeah. do? He bites his knuckles. Cody tries yeah. to hold on to these spiked... Of the railings. Yeah, the yeah. spiked railings and everything, which much fucking hurt. Like, you know. No, no. <laughs> Are you gonna kick the shit or I'm gonna bite your knuckles as but well? But doesn't he? Doesn't he as well? Right? He he, he throws a shoe at him as well. <laughs> <laughs> he takes his shoe off and throws it at him. Wait, it's it's just, brilliant. It just goes to show that you know it's it's good to you know, it's easy to glamorize the lifestyle and everything, but it is down and dirty. Oh yeah, God yeah, it <laughs> is. It is. Yeah. Well, I'm well, joking I... aside. You know, uh, you know, uh, from the few punches or kicks that don't connect, it you know, it's just Sunny's ferocity is just is is great. Yeah. I, 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 the, the frosty of it always reminds me, rightly or wrongly, De Niro in Mean Streets on the pool tables, right? And he's doing oh, oh, the, the, the pool hole yeah. scene yeah. in, in, and he, in he Mean Streets is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Someone, doesn't he, right? Yeah. That's echoed 20 years later in Goodfellas when they're killing Billy Bats. The stamp yeah. is exactly the same. It's not in the Irishman, I'll admit, but uh, you know, yeah. but, uh, you've got to take those punches, isn't it? You know, but uh, no, but. Um, no, it, the bite, the bite, is now talking about then the differences in in choreography. So very briefly, back in Sicily, Michael marries Apollonia. Kay back in New York then comes to visit Tom, looking to reach out to Michael. Then Carlo gives Connie one hell of a beating, leading Sonny to react accordingly and bite his fist. Now, unlike Sonny beating up Carlo in the street, this scene is for me far more brutally realistic with Carlo taking his belt to his pregnant wife, and then when he chases her into the bathroom and the door closes, all we hear are the screams and the belt whips. It's pretty harrowing, isn't it? It's, it is pretty harrowing. It is. Because so just seeing him like walk in in the mirror and then the door closes yeah. and that's all you see is just like... It, it, it's pretty, pretty, pretty rem- reminiscent of those scenes where you don't see what happens, but you th- what you think is much, much worse. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. and it, 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 we've seen it in oh God, how many films, isn't it? You know, it's the trigger, isn't it? He's he's mm-hmm. got the girlfriend to phone his wife, knowing that she's prepared dinner, knowing that he's gonna say, "I'm going out. I didn't tell you to do this. I didn't tell you to yeah. do that." Knowing that she's gonna ring Sunny and Sunny say, "What's he done to you?" Because when he takes the phone call. Like I said earlier, it's the chaos of the kids screaming in the background. There's a million people in the house yet again and all the rest, isn't mm. it? And it just builds and builds and builds. And then it comes up to the toll booth, doesn't it? Yeah, the the, the, it, the causeway scene, is because, you know, Sonny got shot and the causeway is the, the line then that um, Robert Duvall says to, to, to Marlon Brando. But, but surely, right, it's got to be an homage to, to Bonnie and Clyde. 100%. You know, maybe even with a bit of the Wild Bunch thrown in. 100%. Well, he did. Because when, when, when Sonny is shot on the causeway, apparently in that scene, he had 147 squibs on him. Oh. Ridiculous. And they hurt, apparently, when they, they hurt, explode. Yeah. They, they really do hurt. <laughs> the one, the, the nice little cherry on top for that scene. It is a brutal, horrible scene. And, you know, we even though Sonny is a hot tempered guy or whatever, we, we like Sonny. We can't help but like him. 
and, and seeing him meet his end like that when he was just going to do the chivalrous thing is just it's a horrible way to go but it's the way that one of the two guys that's shooting him like kicks him to the face oh, yeah. after he's been shot that many times it's just a wicked little touch it's a final fuck you isn't it I couldn't get yeah. close enough before but now I can isn't it it's horrible me being me I've always wondered about the guy in the toll booth who shuts the window and it's, it's the floor. <laughs> the, amount, the amount of fucking bullet shot there. If oh, one, he must have got shot. If one didn't get him in the arse, then he's a very lucky man. His <laughs> name is Josh, right? And, and then the scene that follows, we're talking about, oh my God, some of the performances from, we haven't even talked really much about Robert Duvall, but the oh, way he tells people that Sonny's been shot oh. and killed. Oh. And, and Brando's reaction it was again from from the both of them is some of the greatest acting I've ever seen. But you know Robert Duvall here, the way his voice. Oh my God, this, there's a few scenes in films where when a man's voice breaks when he's trying to say something. The one always gets me being William Shatner at the end of Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan when he says, "Of all the souls I've met, you know his was the most human," and his voice breaks. Gets me every time. And it's this scene here where he says, Sonny was shot on the causeway and he, he, his voice is breaking as he's saying it. It just gets me every time. It's the intake of breath that Brando takes. No win. What's coming? Yeah the, yeah, the intake of breath, you're right. You're absolutely and, and right. It's when, he, when he takes that intake of breath and he breathes it out and I think Duval reacts to that even yeah. though he's on his, on his way to breaking down himself and he knows he's got to be yeah, strong. I think you're but, right, yeah. But it's Brando literally going, why is my wife crying? Why are there so many people unhappy here? Why is this? Why is that? And why do and, you need a drink before you can tell me? Yeah, why do you need a drink yeah. to tell me, isn't it? You know? You've you've had your drink, now yeah. tell me what, and, what everyone else and, seems and to already know. And it's that intake of breath Brando takes. And as soon as he does that, he breaks down. And then do, and Tom Hagen breaks down. But it's when he stands up after that and he, and he holds Tom Hagen close to him. Yeah. And Duval just goes. And it's yeah. like, oh my God. It doesn't look like acting, does it? It doesn't look... Exactly. It does it looks look real. like no. It looks yeah. real and it's wow. And then Kyle, you mentioned about things, details in this film and things which are set up earlier on. This has gotta be the setup of the film because it's the very first scene. And it's the the payoff, the tragic payoff where Don Corleone has got to go to Bonacera to ask him to return the favour he gave him in the in that opening scene. Yeah. He's in his shoes now. He's you know, he's, he he's where he was. And it's a beautiful juxtaposition from And it's that line when they and it's as a father, right, this this always gets me. He says, Look how they massacred my boy. Yeah. He it's, does oh my word. He does similar to that scene with Tom Hager, doesn't he? And he goes, Look what they did to my but, and it's a, a very slight yeah. breath just there, and it's yeah. like, oh my god! And oh, I know. It's it's that emotional level, and going back to what I was saying about Bonacera being stood there as the lift is coming down, immaculately dressed, hair is perfect, and he yeah. knows what he's going to be having to deal with, and you know, and he comes to him, and I got I got goosebumps. I've got goosebumps yeah. talking about it. Was it was a goosebumps moment. Yeah. The darkness it's... is uh, personified in that scene too. There's shots of Brando, and it's literally just a black background at that yeah. point because he he's at his lowest low, and it's just representing that. It it's a uh, it's an interesting that little vignette that scene is very interesting how they lit it because it's just literally just like a spotlight on them, and everything else is just darkened around them. It's yeah, yeah, really cool. <laughs> They, 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 Steve, am I right in saying that Gordon Willis put the lights above them to create all the shadows? I don't know, but but yeah, the the background and everything, like I say, it, it 
it is at the very beginning when we first see Bonacero, who seems to, you know, he he's an undertaker. He, you know, darkness follows him around as well. You know, in this scene, it's so because in, in the book, he believes that um, he's going to be asked to get rid of what a um, one of the victims of the um, Corleone family, and that he was going to be, you know, mixed up in a crime. But in this scene, he his nervousness is. I think it adds to it because we know what's happened. We know, we, you know, we are in his position. We know how is the Don going to react to this, and the way that he does react is so emotional. Mm. You know, try and make him look good for his mother. You know, and things like that. You know. Yeah, yeah. That I, that that's the other line, isn't it? Oh my yeah. god. Oh. And, and yet, from that moment onwards, Colione, Don Colioni is in charge, and he's like, okay, this is it. This is enough. Yes, yeah. And it, we're going from one scene of darkness and yeah. to visually not a scene of darkness, but Apollonia being killed in the car bomb, which is really is is the death of Michael, really, isn't it? Yeah. Or the or. Any semblance of Michael being the, the the sort of war hero, the the the, the Ivy League student that he was, anything other than a part of this family that that's gone now. Yeah, the, something the left now. Yeah, the, the emotional switch has been has gone now. Yeah. It's half permanently, isn't it? You know, because I think any any love or warmth of heart that he he had died when she died, and you could see him, you know, possibly living out the rest of his life happily with her, but then you know his past catches up with him. She's killed, and then his character takes a turn. For both the rest of this film and leading on to the second film, it's kind of fascinating that such a pivotal moment isn't. I, there are deleted scenes, I know, but she's never referenced again. And she, I, no. I, I, it'd be fascinating to know whether Kay actually knew that he got married in Sicily. Yeah, you know, I think so it's, it's like uh, you were at war. We don't talk about that. I think yeah, it was kind of like that absolutely. From, yeah, and it could it's be a beautiful touch. He's just like I. We yeah. don't talk about Avalonia, like, period. Yeah, what happens if Vegas stays in Vegas? <laughs> <laughs> I think in the book that he does confess to her that what happened, you know? Right, right. I, uh, I, 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 I think I know, it's better without it, though. Oh, I know there is, there is a deleted scene in Godfather Part 2 that resolves that matter because Fabrizio... Is oh down. yeah, Fabrizio is isn't he working in a restaurant or something? No, he's somewhere? got his own pizza place. He's known as yeah, pizza place. Fra- yeah. Fred Vincent. Uh, yeah. he, he emigrates to America. He emigrates to fucking America. Like I mean, and then he, he opens up his own uh, pizza place. He's shown a picture of what he looks like now to what he was then. It based well, three guesses how they kill him. It's it's fascinating because it it, it it was such a big significant moment for him not to be referenced in either film thereafter. It's quite quite bold in storytelling terms, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, because that defined that is the turn in. Of Michael Colley, never mind the shooting in the restaurant, the death of his first wife is the moment where emotions are switched off and everything is almost a job for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah. yeah something dies. Yeah, absolutely. It does, it does. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Is. Yeah. yeah, that's the right term. Yeah. The dawn is born in him. Yes. There. Yeah, absolutely. And then we, we go back to New York, then you've got that amazing scene with Vito and the heads of the five families where he works out that Don Barzini is the one behind his attempted assassination i gotta say this is one of i think the more i watch i think this is one of brando's best scenes as time goes by and his position becomes stronger will he attempt any individual vendetta look we are all reasonable men here we don't have to give assurances as if we were lawyers you talk about vengeance is vengeance gonna bring your son back to you or my boy to me I forgot the vengeance of my son. 
But I have selfish reasons. My younger son was forced to leave this country because of this Sonotso business. All right, I have to make arrangements to bring him back here safely, clear of all these false charges. But I'm a superstitious man. And if some unlucky accident should befall him, if he should get shot in the head by a police officer, or if he should hang himself in his jail cell, or if he's struck by a bolt of lightning, then I'm going to blame some of the people in this room. And that I do not forgive. But that aside, Let me say that I swear on the souls of my grandchildren that I will not be the one to break the peace we've made here today. What's remarkable this is, scene as well is that this is a meeting of all the crime families and this is before anybody knew that the commission really existed. Who's who was putting this in, um, probably for dramatic terms, I would imagine. But the FBI, they didn't know that this commission existed like they did at the time. They didn't know that it was this organised thing. Syndicate. You know, yeah. Because there's, there's something about this whole scene, for me, that makes the whole organisation of the Mafia seem all the more, I don't know what the right word is, maybe grand and civilised, because even though they'd happily kill each other, it's almost like a modern version of the Roman Senate, the way they're discussing the running of their own little empire. Yeah. And a, and, a, and a decision's being made, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's tremendous. And Vito Corleone is pleading almost, isn't he? I've, I've lost yeah. a son, you've lost a son. We don't need to go any further than this. And it's the moment of weakness, the first moment of weakness, isn't it? He uses that meeting to find out who it was who um, started all this. Yeah, yeah but, but I think only to, only to kind of warn Michael. Yeah, yeah, but the thing is, is it's his projective vulnerability in order to find. Oh yes, who, yes, yes. It's you know, real vulnerability. Though. No, no, but yeah. the, it, you know, it's because he's always thinking all of the time, isn't he? Yeah. You know, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to ensure this. I've got to ensure that. Because the last thing he wants is Michael to be killed, isn't it? Ultimately, you know, he yeah. wants to protect his family. Yeah. And then you've got that scene when Michael meets with Kay and he tells her that in five years the Corleone family is going to be completely legitimate, something that will carry forward not just into the second film but also the third. It's Michael seeking this ever-elusive legitimacy for a family, an organisation that's rooted ultimately in criminality. And even though it's no less legitimate than you know, the way many governments are run, this true legitimacy is always going to elude Michael. And then Vito then passes authority onto Michael and you've got that scene with Tessio and Clemenza where they express a wish to break off on the Corleone family. It's at this point I start to notice Al Neri starting to become more visible as Michael's bodyguard. Mm. Obviously he'll play, play a bigger part in the second film. And that scene where Tom is told that he's no longer going to be consigliere. Without Tom. You're out, Tom. Yeah, you're yeah. out. Sorry, you're yeah. out. And it's the way, the dismissive way that Michael says, no, you're out. We then go to Las Vegas where Michael is attempting to move the family business there and, and Michael confronts Mo Green. Now, Mo Green has been tasked with looking after Fredo, who's been sent out to Vegas after the, the sort of bungled job that he did of protecting his father. And then Michael offers to buy him out. You think I'm skimming off the top, Mike? You're unlucky. <laughs> You goddamn guineas really make me laugh. I do you a favor and take Freddy in when you're having a bad time, and then you try to push me out. Wait a minute. You took Freddy in because the Corleone family bankrolled your casino because the Molinari family on the coast 
guaranteed his safety. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business, Mike. First of all, you're all done. The Coyote family don't even have that kind of muscle anymore. The Godfather is sick, right? You're getting chased out of New York by Bazzini and the other families. What do you think is going on here? You think you can come to my hotel and take over? I talked to Bazzini. I can make a deal with him and still keep my hotel. Is that why you slap my brother around in public? Oh, no, that, that, that was nothing, Mike. Now, now, uh, Mo didn't mean nothing by that. Sure, he flies off the handle once in a while, but, but Mo and me were good friends, right, Mo, huh? I got a business to run. I got to kick asses sometimes to make it run right. We had a little argument, Freddy and I, so I had to straighten him out. You straightened my brother out. He was banging cocktail waitresses two at a time. Players couldn't get a drink at the table. What's wrong with you? I leave for New York tomorrow. Think about a price. Do you know who I am? I'm Mo Green. I made my bones when you were going out with cheerleaders. Wait a minute, Mo. Mo, I got an idea. Tom, Tom, you're the conciliary. Now you can talk to the Don, you can explain. Just a minute. Don is semi-retired, and Mike is in charge of the family business now. Have anything to say, say it to Mike. Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Ever. And it's at that point then where Mo, you know, Mo really loses his shit and doesn't mince his words and doesn't seem in any way kind of fearful of Michael. You know, he's like, you know, yo, I am, I'm Mo Green. You know, you don't buy me out, I buy you out. And then Fredo steps in and, and, and says to Tom, you know, Tom, you know, to sp- you know sp- speak to Dad, speak to the Don. And clearly going over Michael's head. It's then when Michael tells Fredo never to take sides with anyone against the family again. Even though a sequel to this film was never planned when they were making the first one it's here that the seed is planted this sidelining of fredo maybe quite rightly by his father and his brothers that's established but then becomes something that's so prominent in the second film it's the way it's shot as well because it technically is it's fredo's point of view isn't it it is yeah because michael's looking up at yeah. him from the chair yeah isn't he? and you know and it's a case you know of being told directly by someone don't fucking do this again yeah that's what it boils down to it doesn't it you it know? does it in such a way doesn't he yeah that I can see Al Pacino's performance now. This almost as if he's he's like doe-eyed, as he said. He's not intense. He's kind of like. But he's unblinking. He's unblinking. Unblinking. Yeah. The intensity and and he's not aggressively spoken. He's almost quietly yeah, he's, he's spoken. Softly isn't spoken, it? almost. Isn't and perhaps it? that's the intensity. Yeah, Fredo, you're my brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. And when he starts speaking to him, he's not looking at him to start either, is he? So he That's turns. Right. He, he says, he goes, Fredo, and then he turns to him. Yeah. And then it's like a case of this is serious now. Much like a Don may whisper to his consigliere or to his, one of his aides, sort that out without mm-hmm. having, having yeah. to look at what that problem is. If I've got to look sure. at that problem and say what it is, then you've got a problem, isn't it? It's astonishing. What do we got next? And you've got the scene with oh, the, the, the scene with Michael and Vito discussing how they'll come at Michael and, and, and assassinate him. Now, apparently, 
This was a pickup scene written by Chinatown scribe Robert Town as a favour for Coppola after he realised that there was no scene with just Vito and Michael. And it seems as if there's been quite a big time jump here. And this is something I've never noticed before because in fact the whole last act seems almost to condense a lot of time in the story to a relatively short time in the film as Vito seems much older and his mental sharpness has really slipped in this scene. It's 10 years from the start of the film to the finish of the film. Wow. So when he starts the film, I think he's late 50s. Because when he dies, he's around 60. He's not in, I don't think he's in his 70s. I think he's in his late 60s. Yeah. And probably haven't gone through wartime and farming, uh, you know, uh, not farming, but, you know, rationing and stuff like that. Probably yeah. aged people much more at, during that time. No, it's 10 years, the, 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 wow. the, 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 the span of the film. It's fascinating when you think about it. But no, Robert, Robert Town was actually thanked in Coppola's Oscar speech when him and Puzo won uh, Best Screenplay. Yeah. And he made a point of thanking Robert Town for consultation, I think it is. <laughs> you know, rather than actually writing yeah. the film. That, that, that one scene. And I think with that scene especially, you've got two fathers talking about the, their experiences with their children and, you know, expectation versus reality. That lovely line that Pacino says, you know, I was a young Mike. Uh, is, it, is it a young Mike or a young Anthony? Anthony, isn't it? How was your boy? How was your boy? And he says... Uh, he reads the funny papers, you know, I wasn't reading funny papers at that age. <laughs> not at age three. Yeah, no. yeah, not at age three, you know, when he gets it, he fully gets it. You know, the progression, and it's, it's just the little moments. Because it's like after this point, now where Michael is just so cold and calculated, you can still see that he's got love for his family. Yeah, absolutely. He's got love for his father, he's got love for his son. Yeah, but with, with him and Kay, him and Kay are, dist- are distant still, aren't they? Yeah, that's right, yeah. You just think of Vito, though, who, unlike Michael, has been a guy that's just never let go of our love for his family. And then that then bleeds into the, the scene of his death, where he's, he's with his grandson, mm. and he does that thing where he puts the, um, like the, orange, the orange segments yeah. in his mouth. Yeah. yeah. Again, oranges precluding something happening to Vito. Yeah. You know, he, he dies with, you know, with someone he loves in circumstances which are not because of the, the lifestyle that he's had. And I think that is a fitting end to him. That's the one thing I didn't like about the new version of Godfather Three, you know, the Godfather Coda, because they which I, I've not seen oh, yet, well. Steve. So <laughs> no, oh, no, me, no me, no me, no me. For those who have, you've seen Godfather Part Three, yeah. and of course Michael dies alone, you know, whereas um, Vito dies with family, you know, even if it's just yeah. you know, and that's the difference. That's the tragedy of Michael Corleone. It is, yeah. That, was, that, scene, was, that was projected at the end of Part Two, mind as well, wasn't it? The final. Yeah, show. with him sat there alone. Yeah. Wasn't it? yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, he was always he destined was. to be alone. And then after Vito's death at his funeral, is is warning to Michael pays off as Tessio becomes the one who arranges the meeting with Barzini and Tatalia and turn to assassinate Michael. And then we have the baptism scene. Ah, oh, wow, the, the baptism scene. But the baby, as we know, was played by Sofia Coppola, who yes. filmed Lost in Translation, had its own episode of Film 89 last year. This scene, right, this intercutting of the baptism with all of these murders and the words of the priest playing over them is it's just something else, isn't it? It's this next level filmmaking. And again, Coppola makes all of the killings have some sort of memorable aspect, the singles them out, like the shooting of Mo Green through his glasses. There were two tubes going into the glasses, one which shot blood kind of towards the actor, and the other one shot like a ball bearing through the lens or through the glasses outwards. After reading that, how they did it, I watched the film, you can actually see it shooting out. How dangerous would that have been if that glass hadn't broken and that ball bearing had like sort of gone back into his eye? I just think some of the stuff they, you know, they, they were doing back then was just, yeah, it, it was just crazy. That's why 
practical effects when they work when they work are yes. better than anything, aren't they? Hundred percent, yeah. The, the the scene where the shooters break into the room and the couple are in bed. In bed, yeah. It's just pure violence, that is, isn't it? It's just like disregard. We don't care. We've been told we've got to go into this room and kill these people. Go in and Tommy guns are going and everything, isn't it? And that's yeah. And you then you've got Neary then dressed as a cop shooting Barzini yeah, on the steps. Yeah, yeah. That is, is brilliantly played, isn't it? Because Al Neary has always been like this very peripheral figure, isn't he? In the, in yes. the first Godfather. And to what he becomes in the second, we'll get on to that perhaps. When you consider that scene when he kneels to steady himself because he knows he's got to get this shot right. On those steps, you've got all that happening, you've got that organ music blaring out amongst Michael repenting all of his sins whilst committing the ultimate sins at the same time, isn't it? It's the ultimate hypocrisy, isn't it? it? Exactly, it is, yeah. exactly. It also and foreshadows uh, the death of um, Sofia Coppola, I can't remember her name now, in, um, in the third film. Absolutely. I think it's a little more operatic, just not on the nose as much as the third film. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will say, because Sky, we're not doing the third film, are we? Really? Or are we? I know Steve will want to. I'm a huge fan of the third film. I, I, I got to be honest. a lot more than I thought I would have. Yeah, right, it's been a I, while, I, though. It's, it's, got, it's got so much going for it, but there's, there's things that don't work in it. But that sequence... Yes. Spoiler. I think we mentioned this, Steve, didn't we, in our 1990 episode? That, that scene, sequence is yeah. astonishing. Yeah, it and it's the scene, it, it's when he's on the steps and he lets out that cry, oh. that silent cry. And it's silent it's, for ages. It's, yeah, and again, they were asked, that's the Marlon Brando breath, that is, isn't it? It is. The intake. Is. And whereas Brando is reserved, Pacino just goes, wow. Yeah. Talking about like, beautiful scenes, right? Although one that's like tinge with darkness is the scene where Tessio is confronted by Tom Hagen. This is one of Vito's oldest and best friends, he's, and he's betraying the family. But it's handled with such respect and almost dignity by Tom and his men. They you know the respect they've got towards Tessio. And as soon as the baptism is over, Michael just wastes no time in getting rid of Carlo, which is just so. It just it always gets me that literally as they're walking out of, out of the baptism, no, Carlo, we're not going to go to Vegas or wherever they were going. We're going to go elsewhere. We go back to the house. Go back to the house the way he deals with Carlo so calmly, pretty much assuring that he'll be spared. Even though Michael knows as soon as Carlo gets in that car, his men are going to kill him. It's this change, this slow change in Michael and his cold ruthlessness that becomes more rapid after Apollonia is killed that I think defines the film. Because as much as Marlon Brando is the one that, that everyone talks about in The Godfather, I think that this and the second film ultimately are about Michael. And and Vito obviously. Yeah, I think the Godfather is Michael. It's Michael, isn't it? Yeah. Because oh, yeah. it's it's the Godfather. Yeah. And that that famously led to never mind Brando snubbed. Pacino refused to go to the Oscars that year because he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Absolutely. He gets more screen time than and Brando. What the I, hell? I, I, I gotta be honest. I kind of admire the bollocks he had to turn around and say, "Hang on, no." I know this is my second or third film, but fucking yeah. hell, I should oh, be yeah. in the same category as Marlon Brando. Never yeah. mind that I've been nominated 100%. with my, ski, my my screen brothers. It's astonishing. It, it's the corruption of Michael, isn't it, which is taken further in the second film. Anyway, yeah. Well, it is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's that. That's the story, which is at the heart of the God, the Godfather. That absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
absolutely it's and that would you know that was the tagline that they used on on this on the second film in in the and also certainly on the vhs um releases but one thing i was going to say sky about tessio is when he turns to tom hagan he goes tom can you sort this for all time's sake the comments are made throughout about tom not being you know sicilian and he's not the proper consigliere and all the rest but the thing is Tom Megan's always the most level-headed man in the room, isn't he? Always. Yes. There's, there's no passion. Other than when he gets angry about, you know, not being conciliary. But that's done for a reason, as we ultimately find out, isn't it, you know, initially. Yeah. We haven't even talked about Talia Shire, really, have we? No, I mean, Talia Shire. Right? And we talk about the performances of the, the headline cast. Heat may be the only film I can think of the top of my head that has a better headline cast than, say, The Godfather, right? Just off the top of my head, there's others out there. But you look at what every actor is doing in this film, even the people acting for the first time, the first time, Carlo, um, Gianno Rizzi, or Russo, sorry, they, what they're giving and what they're doing, it genuinely is unbelievable. Yeah. So, obviously, Michael gets rid of all his enemies. And let's move on then, guys to that ending with Michael where Kay confronts him about whether or not he's had Carlo killed. He says, just this once, Kay, just this once, you can ask me about my business. And it's her relief when he says that, no, no, I didn't. But then her realization that that's probably not true and he has now become something else, something completely closed off to her. And it's that last image of the, the door closing on Michael. Yeah, and, and, and Clemenza kisses his hand. You know, Clemenza, the guy who'd said, I want to break off now, you know. Michael, you know, we always liked him, whatever, but, you know, we, we want to break off on the family. But after Michael has shown that he's got what is required to replace his father. And again, Kay at, at her most muted, isn't it, at that point in the film. She's yeah. been bright and colourful. and It's that look on her face. <laughs> You know, we haven't said enough about Diane yeah. Keaton. No, exactly. No, again, incredible. Again. You know, her and Talia Shire are both incredible in this film. And you know, Talia Shire has as much screen time easily as someone like John Cazale, maybe more. Obviously, she'll come to the fore in the subsequent two films. But both her and Diane Keaton are just absolutely remarkable in in this film. And the story goes that she didn't go to a brother, Francis Coppola. She went through the addition process and. Coppola was adamant, I can't have my sister in it because, yeah. you know, nepotism and, you know, and all the rest. But he was like, well, I want someone a little bit more. Uh, I don't want a pretty young girl that I've got. I want somebody different to her. And it, and it was it was the casting people that were going, no, well, no, she's perfect. You know, she, she's Italian-American. You know, this is exactly what you want. You know, you, you're shooting yourself in your foot. If you don't get somebody like her, and she's she, she's a pretty good actress at the same time, like, you know. Oh, she's and it's like the way that when Michael grabs it, as I to pull her in when she's just going, "You cold blooded bastard!" When she's confronting him, and then she almost lets him embrace her, but then she pushes away. Yeah. And it's just the little touches like that that just sells it all. And that's it, guys. The door closes, and we are done. The, you know, the Godfather is is over. It is, yeah. So it was released on. Well, guys, as we record now, it is the twenty second of March. So in two days' time, it will be the 50th anniversary of the US release of The Godfather. It was made on a budget of $6 million and took a worldwide gross of $250 million, which in, t- in 1972, that is just remarkable. Nominated for 11 Academy Awards, and it won three for Best Picture, Best Actor for Marlon Brando, and Best Writing for an Adapted Screenplay. And obviously, as you said, guys, the biggest snub was that Pacino was only nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. And Coppola didn't get director. Do you know what did? 
Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse. Don't get me wrong, Cabaret is a tremendously made film. It is. But Bob Fosse is an incredible director, all that jazz. Yeah. I'm saying, I've never seen that movie still. And we're talking about The Godfather on a podcast right now. That shows the lasting impact right there. No one's talking about Cabaret. No, no one is. The Godfather saved Paramount Pictures. The Godfather is arguably the film that saved Hollywood much, well, for different reasons, because much like Spider-Man last year when it came out, saved after a pandemic, Hollywood was on its arse when The Godfather came out. The Godfather became the highest grossing film of all time when it came out, yeah. which for an R-rated in America, 18 yeah. rated at the time in the UK. Yeah, two hour, 55 minute film. Uh, yeah, right, two hour, 55 film. But do you know what I love about this story though is, the next film that became the biggest film of all time was Jaws, directed by yeah. Steven Spielberg. And when Spielberg saw The Godfather, he immediately thought to himself that he should quit the directing business. <laughs> <laughs> and then the film after that, that became the biggest film of all time until 1982 was yeah. Star Wars, Star directed Wars. by George Lucas. George Lucas, who happened to be extremely Work. good friends with, yeah, and and worked, uh, on, the worked on the Godfather. Yeah, those people were very yeah. good friends all throughout oh, God, the night yeah. till now. Uh, yeah, you know, and them and and, and Brian De Palma. Yeah, yeah. Brian De Palma. Yeah, Scorsese. It shows them. It shows them. Scorsese. Yeah. 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 Carpenter even John Carpenter was friends with Lucas from at USC. Uh, do you guys uh, ever see that poster, of, like a Jaws promotional poster? But when it was breaking all the records, it's just eating the numbers and the names of the movies and the Godfather yeah. yes. at the top yeah. of the. It's a great, great poster. That tradition has has gone on and on and on up until the present day, when James Cameron rather selfishly re-released Avatar in just China, <laughs> just was it? To... <laughs> to get to get the extra six million quid he needed to beat Endgame at the box office. (laughs) And if you look at the the to and fro's from the film posters uh, or GIFs or whatever, the touch of class between them is is great. And you can imagine the Russos going, do you know what? That's gamesmanship. (sighs) It is. It is. And, you know, it it is a little bit petty, isn't it? Apparently, the Avatar 2 teaser is coming out in the next two weeks, apparently. You know, so a show in front of um, Doctor Strange, but there we are. Yeah, yeah, that's what. And I've said this before. Imagine an event that is off in the distant future, something that you will never get to. It's like when you get you you fall into a black hole and time and space get stretched off to infinity, and it's theorized you'll never get to the center. You will never see Avatar two. <laughs> Well, I used to say that about my football club winning league titles, but that's happened, and they yes, won a lot of trof- lot of trophies in between. And it's not going to happen this year. But, but Steve, there's a big difference between Liverpool Football Club and Avatar Two. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, as I did on our Citizen Kane episode. I sort of threw in a late low baller to the two Steves and to Dave. And I'm going to do that now because I'm going to put you all on the spot and I'm going to ask you if you think that The Godfather is the greatest film ever made. Not your favourite, because of Leighton, I know what you're going to say, but is it the greatest film ever made? And Leighton, I'm going to start with you. You want me to be objective then, yeah? If you can. And there's no right or wrong answer anyway. Well, no, it, 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 it is personal choice at the end of the day. I'd argue, look, Goodfellas stands on the shoulders of the Godfather trilogy, whichever way you want to look at. You could argue that Goodfellas wouldn't have been made Nicholas Pelleggi's involvement, even, you know, being solidified, being there as the film was being made and his 
connections. But as much as I, I, it pains me to say this, there aren't that many perfect films made. And there, there genuinely isn't. The Godfather is one of them. Objectively, it is, without yes. question. It's When you even watch the film, whether you read books or not, or whether you watch a TV show about the making of The Godfather or not, the film stands alone as unquestionably one of the greatest pieces of art you will ever see, listen or hear to. Agreed. Steve? I agree. You know, in the, when, it, when it comes to your personal choice, sometimes the films you choose are not perfect films because they just perhaps mean something to you or whatever, or they speak to you in a certain way. But there are a few perfect movies. You know, we've talked about Goodfellas, Night, Jaws, films like that. As far as we're concerned, they are perfect movies. And this is one of them. It's on the Mount Rushmore. If you had to pick four, and like you're making a definitive list of four movies for me, it has to be there with Citizen Kane. The two other movies, I would still have to think about at the moment, but I would not hesitate putting those two films up there. When you're like, what? not only how great is this movie on its own, but its lasting impact on many movies after it, and just the legacy of what it means to film. You can't say the greatest movie of all time without mentioning The Godfather, for sure. Exactly, I agree. Exactly. Okay, when I then, after sneakily asking the guys that question on the Citizen Kane episode, I, I tried to quickly formulate an answer. I think I said, it's the one of the most well-made films ever made, but Citizen Kane's never going to be, for me, the greatest film ever made, because just the story of Charles Foster Kane and some of the things that the film puts too much emphasis on are just things that will never win me over completely. But... The story The Godfather tells is a complete story that I just love. I love the film from beginning to end. It's absolutely flawless, like you say, guys. It's flawless filmmaking on a level that we just don't see anywhere near as often as we'd love to. All I will say, though, is it's an incomplete film after you've seen The Godfather Part 2. And again, this is a conversation we'll continue at a later date. But it's one of those things that it's like The Terminator. It isn't complete for me until you've seen Terminator 2. And Alien... The story of Alan Ripley isn't complete until you've seen Aliens. And the way that The Godfather 2 enriches the characters of Vito, obviously seeing Rob De Niro playing him as he's grown up and established himself in America, and then seeing the further corruption and downfall of Michael, and his real downfall in a way that killing Carlo. Carlo was a scumbag, total scumbag. But what he does in the second film just takes it to sort of next level darkness and and still being totally believable in line with the way we've seen his character progress but maybe what i'm trying to say is that it's one half of the greatest film ever made because i i think for the whole picture the whole story you need to have part two we'll talk about that later date can i just ask <laughs> you know we're gonna do an episode on part have, two have My you God. seen the um, saga version i know no, is it can you find it anyway steve i, I, I don't, don't know if it's it's not available on any sort of modern format like no. blu-ray or anything like that la- i'm genuinely fascinated watch it i know it was put on tv over two nights yeah. or something wasn't it yeah, yeah. I, I saw it on video and it was one of those great big double cassettes that we used to have you know I ne- i've never seen it i've only ever seen the the films you know the theatrical versions i genuinely would love to see it AMC uh, plays it sometimes, and they I, they had it once for stream. Uh, I don't know. That was a long time ago, though. The only thing I've seen from it, it personally is just like YouTube will have uh, like the credits for each episode, so you can like see kind of like where they structured it. But right. I haven't been able to watch it all the way through. But the story was never it was never structured to play chronologically, and therefore, if you ever tried to do that, you run doing the good work, the hard work, the couple of did. 
So there we have it, gents. Another one of the big ones crossed off the list, and it's been an absolute pleasure. It's, it's always daunting, isn't it, when we tackle a film like this? It know, is. When we did Goodfellas and Casino, and then when we did Taxi Driver without Kyle. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, right? This has probably been one of the, and bear in mind all the other podcasts I've done with you, oh, yeah. this has been one of the most stressful podcasts I've done because I was I was reading the one of the books that I've got, and I said to my wife, I'm like, I haven't got enough material, and she's like, well, you are on about a film. <laughs> that you could spend three hours talking about one character, probably. And I was like, My God, fucking yeah. hell, you're totally right. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, when did you watch The Fucking Godfather last then? <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's yeah. someone who doesn't watch films on a regular basis, but she's totally right. i got to be honest, guys, I am I'm pleased. I'm very pleased that the, everything that we've got across, hopefully, you know, is coherent and succinct. Like we're only ever going to be able to give our interpretation of things, and, and yeah. I think you know that's what makes this unique. This is our take on the films. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. as much as we've discussed a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff and whatever, which you can, you know, you can find elsewhere, told probably in a more concise fashion on like making all documentaries or whatever. We just like to give our take and our interpretation of films which have been discussed endlessly. So yeah, Leighton, Kyle, thank you so much for joining Steve and I once again. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you as always for your continued support to Film 89. We are all very humbled by our ever-growing following and the amount of downloads you get because you guys and girls keep listening to us and recommending us to others. But if we could just ask you to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, that would be the icing on the Corleone-sized wedding cake. That's an awful they can't refuse. <laughs> well, there you go. I was going to say. So, gents, where can people find you on social media if they want to get hold of you to make you an offer that you can't refuse? Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at Kyle Reardon Film, and I, I've been on Letterboxd a good amount lately, so I'm there as Kyle Reardon, R-E-A-R-D-O-N. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, at Welsh Bluesman. I'm no longer on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at, at Leitwinst, and I'm on Instagram at the same as well. Well, I'm still on Facebook. You can catch me there at Sky Movies, and you can also catch me where I'm more likely to be on Twitter at Sky Movies, and you can catch the rest of the gang at Film89UK. You can email us, admin at film89.co.uk, and please check out the website, film89.co.uk, uh, where I believe, Steve, you've written about The Godfather Part 3, haven't you? I have, yes, in defence of. In defence of, <laughs> quite rightly, I would say, quite rightly. I hope, guys and girls, you've uh, enjoyed this episode. It really has been you know, one of the ones we've wanted to do since Film 89 began, and we hope that we've done this incredible film justice. So that all that leaves us to say is stay safe, be excellent to one another, and more importantly, Kyle, you can do this one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I completely... Oh. Is he eating? I'm so sorry. I was literally so into what you were saying, and then you said my name, and I just... Literally, I was just so in tune, what you're, and then you said Kyle. I'm like, oh, I was done. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Sky, can I can I sign off? Go on, you can sign off late. I'm so sorry. I believe in podcasting. <laughs> We're out of here.